This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving to Mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net-zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Approved a drug that sucks. 
a drug for COVID that shouldn't be approved. So anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started, and we're going to do that with uh, Chris Cuomo of CNN. Chris Cuomo of CNN has been indefinitely suspended because there were some new revelations about just how involved he was with his brother's scandal and just how much he was helping him and the nature of the way in which he was helping him. So uh, New York Times reports the following. The documents which were not privy, which we were not privy to before their public release raised serious questions, CNN said in a statement on Tuesday. These are documents released by the New York Attorney General showing text messages and emails between Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo's staff. When Chris admitted to us that he had offered advice to his brother's staff, he broke our rules and we acknowledged that publicly, the network said. But we also appreciated the unique position he was in and understood his need to put family first and job second. However, these documents point to a greater level of involvement in his brother's efforts than we previously knew. As a result, we have suspended Chris indefinitely, pending further evaluation, the network said. In scores of emails and text messages between the television host and his brother's inner circle, Chris Cuomo repeatedly offered advice. Please let me help with the prep, he texted a senior aide in March, and made efforts to track down the status of pending articles at other news outlets, including Politico and The New Yorker, that concerned allegations of sexual harassment by Andrew Cuomo. At one point, Andrew Cuomo's former top aide, Melissa DeRosa, asked the anchor if he could check his sources about a rumor that Politico was working on an article that included additional accusations. On it, Chris Cuomo responded. Now, um, like I said, uh, emails and text messages are available now, and the rot goes a lot deeper than this. By the way, not just Chris Cuomo, not just Chris Cuomo. Uh, Liz Smith, I believe her name is, that was Mayor Pete's, uh, the person who ran Mayor Pete's campaign in the Democratic primary. She was involved in this, and she was doing pro-Andrew Cuomo spin to members of the media, particularly Katie Turr. And there's an interaction she was having with somebody that was released where she basically says, Katie Turr is repeating word for word my spin on the Andrew Cuomo case live on TV right now. So in other words, to break this down as simply as possible, you have Democratic politicians and Democratic staffers, Democratic aides, bragging about effectively controlling the media and saying, look, they're, they're saying the things I want them to say about Andrew, like the spin is working. And so now we know Chris Cuomo wasn't just involved in giving some one-off advice to his brother about what was going on with his you know, sexual harassment scandal, but he was directly involved, and he was looking to do like oppo research on these women, using his connection media to, to get the dirt and give them a heads up about what's coming, and it, he was acting as a a political hitman for his brother while on CNN. Now, listen, the hilarious thing is that it even got to this, the point we're at right now because what happened? Well, during COVID, Andrew Cuomo was on CNN like every single week on Chris Cuomo's show, and they were acting like he was a hero. Meanwhile, at the same time, you all know this because you watch this show, uh, Andrew Cuomo made a decision to let people COVID positive back into nursing homes, which then led to COVID to spread like wildfire and killed countless people. At the same time, he was negotiating a book deal and getting millions of dollars about how he's so wonderful and defeated COVID as he's allowing COVID to spread like wildfire. 
Now, the list goes on and on with the scandals of Andrew Cuomo. Uh, covered a lot of them on this show. Uh, when I was on Breaking Points with Crystal a while back, we also covered, uh, we got to the details of all the different scandals around Andrew Cuomo. Another one is massive corruption scandal. One of his top aides is, I think, literally in prison as a result of a corruption scandal. Andrew Cuomo uh, opened up an anti-corruption committee to clean up politics in New York. When that committee turned on him and his allies, he shut the committee down. Comical. There was a scandal about how he used the wrong kind of parts for a new bridge in New York, by the way, a bridge that they named after his father, uh, and then he tried to hide the fact that he used, you know, the, the wrong supplies, which could be dangerous when you're talking about building a bridge. So you have all these things, all these scandals, a thousand scandals surrounding Andrew Cuomo. He was invited on and treated as a hero by Chris Cuomo. They would joke and talk about mom's spaghetti and Sunday dinners, hey. And then when the shit hits the fan, what happens? Chris Cuomo goes out there and he's like, look, it's my brother. Uh, it, I have journalistic integrity, so I obviously can't talk about what's going on with my brother. So you do positive coverage for him relentlessly, but then when things turn negative, well, I can't talk about it because it's my brother. Well, you shouldn't have been talking about it when it was the positive propaganda you were doing for him. And so CNN, I mean, they already had no credibility to begin with, but they totally blew their credibility on keeping Chris Cuomo on the air. And now it's like, okay, I guess this is the straw that broke the cow's back. And they're saying, well, we didn't know the extent to which he was involved and just how much he was doing oppo research on the women and just how much he was serving as a hitman for Andrew. So now we're going to let him go. Now, listen, in response to this, I've seen a number of people come out and make the argument, look, yeah, if you're a brother, you're going to look out for your brother. Family always comes first. So what are you going to do? I would act in the same way in the same situation. To which I respond, that's totally fine. But then get the fuck off TV and stop pretending you're in the news business because you're not in the news business. You understand? So, yeah, if you want to say family comes first, I'm always going to look out for my family. Nobody's going to begrudge you looking out for your family. What we are going to begrudge you is having a show on CNN which proclaims like it's the number one name in news, and it's trustworthy. It's not trustworthy. CNN, just like MSNBC, is Democratic Party Fox News. Everybody knows Fox News is just Republican propaganda central. Trump goes there to get his bluff job, and that sounds really dirty. And other Republicans, same thing. And CNN and MSNBC are the mirror image of that. They do the same thing with the Democratic Party. And we have to make a distinction here, because that does not mean CNN and MSNBC are left-wing, and they do it for left-wing ideas. They don't give a shit about left-wing ideas. They don't have any ideology whatsoever. Their ideology is protect the powerful, protect the establishment, and protect the Democratic wing of the establishment, the Democratic Party, the institutional Democratic Party. Uh, Chris Cuomo was doing, before he got axed, he was on his Sirius XM show, and he was saying, the reason why Andrew went down is because Republicans hated him, uh, Democrats turned on him, and the media never really liked him. The media never really liked him. He went through a, a, a grace period during COVID when he was doing those press conferences, where on the press conferences and the optics alone, the veneer of seriousness, he was treated as like the heir apparent to the presidency, a serious person contrasted with Trump's, uh, you know, psychopathic handling of COVID, and Trump did handle it psychopathically, to be clear. But they were acting like this guy was the next coming of God. The media didn't really like him. The media loved him to such an extent they were writing love letters to him. The media didn't really like him. No, he's been outed. The mask is off. Everybody understands he's a hack, fraud, charlatan con man, just like you, Chris Cuomo. 
So again, I have no, you want to put your family first? I have no problem with that whatsoever. Put your family first. But you know what? Day one, when you came out on your CNN show, you should have been like, look, i got to put family first, so I'm going to step down. I'll step down, and instead of being on a news network, um, I'm going to let everybody keep their integrity, which they already lost a long time ago, by the way, and I'll go do a podcast or something and stay in media that way. Which, by the way, yeah, you want to know why he wouldn't do that? Because nobody's going to listen to his goddamn podcast. And it's so funny that they stick by this guy as if this guy's got, like, you know, amazing ratings. Which, by the way, that wouldn't even be an excuse if he had an amazing rating. But he doesn't have amazing ratings anyway. So, like, yeah, let's keep the losers on air. So, everybody, I mean, look, the only takeaway that I, I can have from this is that I'm sure management loved Chris Cuomo. And so they stuck by him as long as humanly possible. But now they're at the point where it's too embarrassing, and it's scandal after scandal after scandal, and they're like, okay, what are we going to do? So, uh, just understand. And this is why I can't stand, like, Brian Stelter's sanctimony on his show about the fake news and the misinformation and the disinformation out there. It's like, look at your own network. Look at yourself. And he was doing apologetics for Chris Cuomo as well. And, by the way, now, after the fact, there's a report in Mediaite where apparently Jake Tapper and uh, all the other CNN hosts were furious when the original scandal broke about Chris Cuomo helping Andrew. They were so mad at management. Yeah. I'm sure they were. Now, all of a sudden, when he's fired, it's like, I don't even like that guy anyway, bro. I have journalistic integrity. I know what he did was destroy any journalistic integrity. Really? Why don't you say anything on air at the time, dipshit? You didn't because you don't really care. You don't care. And that's the thing. All, like, the, the sanctimony and the bloviating and the pompousness and the wagging their finger at Fox News. Fox News is terrible. They're abysmal. They're a, a, a right-wing... Uh, Republican Party propaganda network, and they spread misinformation like crazy, and it's harmful in the real world. But the last part of people who can levy that criticism in a serious way with a straight face are the idiots on CNN and MSNBC who are the mirror image of Fox News, and they're just Democratic Party Fox News. Unless you think that's better, well, I ask you to look at the specifics of this case and tell me if you really think that's so. Because they will bend over backwards, and they will destroy any credibility and journalistic integrity in order to do their mission, which is propaganda for the Democratic Party. So there you have it. Uh, Chris Qu- now, wait, I got, a, I got a hot take here at the end. I got a, a wee bit of a prediction here at the end. The terminology they used was Chris Cuomo is, and I quote, indefinitely suspended pending further review. The indefinitely suspended thing is a direct quote. I think they're going to bring him back eventually. I think they're going to bring Chris Cuomo back eventually. You want to know why I say that? Because they didn't use the word fired or terminated. They used indefinitely suspended, and then they added a qualifier, like pending further review or something. And so now you might say, well, God, Jesus Christ, that's a hot take, and that's a bold-ass prediction. You want to know why uh, I'm leaning in this direction, other than the terminology, which is reason number one? Uh, Jeffrey Tubin is reason number two. Jeffrey Tubin was caught jacking off on a CNN Zoom call, and they brought Homeboy back like five months later. And he's like, I, I apologize for beating off in front of all of you. I'm so sorry. None of you should have seen me buff that nut. And then they're like, okay, cool. Anyway, so analyze the uh, Arbery trial for us. What? <laughs> what? So, again, I mean, it, look, it goes back to... I just, I'm so fed up and disgusted with their sanctimony. And, and these are people who proclaim that they're the authoritative news sources. These are the people 
that gets favorable treatment, favorable treatment on YouTube. All the news stuff redirects to the authoritative sources like CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News and the nightly news. The, the multi-billion dollar corporations are the ones that everybody gets redirected to because they're supposed to be serious, authoritative professionals. Does this look professional to you? We had to wait this long for there to be any disciplinary action? And just, to, just so everybody understands, this has, this has nothing to do with like a free speech issue. If he was just fired for saying something that's politically incorrect or having a take that's uh, outside of the bounds of what's usually considered acceptable, I'd be defending it. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that you don't do your job right. You're supposed to have journalistic integrity and standards, and you have no journalistic integrity and no standards. You do puff pieces for your brother relentlessly at the time, which was also painting a massively misleading picture. And then the second thing turns out that I got to say about it. And clearly behind the scenes, you were working more as a Democratic operative than a journalist or a reporter. So you want to be a Democratic operative? Okay, go be a Democratic operative. You want to put family first? Okay, go put family first. How do you put family first? I got, look, you should have said, the second the scandal happened, I got to step down. The second we learned about all the scandals involving Andrew Cuomo, Chris Cuomo should have said, look, I totally misrepresented who this guy is to the public on my show. I got to step down. I want to put family first. I love my brother, so I got to step down because now I'm in a position where my profession clashes with my loyalty to my family. And if you want to pick your loyalty to your family, fine. But you don't belong on TV pretending to be a news person. So there you have it. Chris Cuomo indefinitely suspended. We'll see how that unfolds. All right, let's keep it going. So Jack Dorsey is officially out as CEO of Twitter. Um, this came as a bit of a surprise to everybody. Now, a lot of people might initially celebrate that. That might be your instinct. Uh, it, it's not like he was the best leader of, of social media. Um, I think that there, there's an issue that many people are um, interested in on, from, on both sides of the equation, to be fair, but the idea of freedom of speech and censorship and deplatforming and the way the various algorithms work and whatever features they're considering rolling out on Twitter, there's, there's obviously, it's a hot button topic. The media almost universally wants to restrict speech more because of a problem of misinformation and disinformation. Um, I think at this point, most people on the right, at least online, are against all that stuff because they feel like it hurts them disproportionately. And a lot of people on the left are also against any of the censorship and the deplatforming and the shitty algorithms, namely because if anybody who questions power is really who gets the shaft. And uh, if you're really on the left, you question power, so you know, you're on the chopping block as well. Now, there are some people, uh, elite liberal media is obviously in favor of the restrictions, and there are some people on uh, the liberal side who are in favor of the, the restrictions. Um, but Jack walked that line incorrectly. I mean, I really don't think you can make a, a strong enough argument to justify the fact that uh, the Taliban is still on Twitter and Donald Trump is off. I mean, Donald Trump is terrible. Uh, he's a war criminal. He's evil. The Taliban are all those things as well. 
And it seems very arbitrary what they determine is, you know, it's something that gets you the internet death penalty versus something that gets you a week suspension or a few days suspension versus something that you just get no punishment at all and are allowed to stay on. So I don't think Jack was particularly good at his job. However, having said that, whoever's replacing him might be worse. So take a look at this. This is a former CTO and new Twitter CEO. His name is like, I'm going to butcher it, and I apologize for that, but Parag Agrawal. In November 2020, he said the following, quote, Our role is not to be bound by the First Amendment, focusing less on thinking about free speech, but thinking about how the times have changed. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So, again, we already have an issue with just how much people are being banned and censored and deplatformed and maybe even shadow banned. Um, and there was already – remember the scandal where you had leaks? The Hunter Biden laptop, laptop leaks came out just before the election. And regardless of what you think of the substance of, of those leaks, because, look, in my opinion, it's half legitimate, half totally illegitimate – the illegitimate part is all the whatever naked stuff he was doing, whatever personal private pictures were on there, whatever drug use implication was on there. That's personal. That's out of bounds. It's just violating somebody's privacy. There's no reason to share that. But the part that was legitimate was all the information on legit corruption, which, of course, Hunter was involved in, and it implicates Joe Biden as well. And we know that these leaks were real. Well, Twitter, along with Facebook and others, they just totally shut down the ability to share that article right before the election. I mean, that is election interference and engineering and totally ruins the idea of this, like, open marketplace in public square where you're supposed to be able to share information freely. And it was, it, that was totally illegitimate, but they did it. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I think, I think they actually, Jack actually apologized for that. So maybe he didn't agree with action behind the scenes and somebody else was directly in charge of making that decision and then he realized, well, I don't agree with this, and they acted. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. You guys correct me in the comment section because it may have been, between Facebook and Twitter and maybe one other social media outlet, um, I think one of them pulled it down and still hasn't apologized and didn't allow the sharing of it, and one pulled it down but then eventually let it go and start allowing people to share it and apologize for it. I think it was Twitter that apologized for it. So anyway, the, the picture I'm trying to paint here is that um, Jack made some bad decisions or was responsible for some bad decisions, and but at least nominally speaking, he did pay the lip service to, we got to lean on the side of free speech as much as possible. And to be fair to him, like, here's, a, here's a, a good comparison for you. So when Alex Jones was banned on, like, all the platforms, I think Twitter was the last to hold out before they banned him. But um, on YouTube, any of the Sandy Hook segments that Alex Jones did, they were pulled down universally across the board on YouTube. Now, how do I know that? Well, look, I covered Alex Jones more than anybody, because so I've been doing this for like a decade. And I remember when the Sandy Hook stuff happened, uh, Media Matters put together a compilation of all the uh, Sandy Hook stuff that Alex Jones has said. And it, it was all, I mean, it's exactly what you think it is. It's like, it's a hoax, it's a conspiracy, the kids didn't, you know, the kids didn't die, and they're, they're crisis actors, and they're just doing this to get your guns. And, and it was like, for an extended period of time, probably months, he was making this argument on his show. So Media Matters spliced together all of it in a three, four-minute clip, whatever it was. I ran it on my show, and I did commentary on it. And I remember recently I needed to bring that up again in the context of an Alex Jones story. I wanted to go find it. It was gone. Then I tried to look up the original Media Matters clip. Gone. And so now think about that. They're not just saying, look, we're going we're gonna to pull it down because of what his viewpoint advocacy and what he's saying here. I literally covered the clip to debunk it and say he's a piece of shit 
and say it's wrong, and they treated me taking the opposite position on it as akin to him promoting those ideas. So that's, you know, to steal the old Obama phrase, that's like you need a scalpel and you're using a hatchet, right? And so that's the censorship and deplatforming that is, is run amok, where you're just cracking down on freedom. Like, I can't debunk Alex Jones? That's how shitty the algorithm is? Well, you know where I was able to find the clip? Twitter, it was still up. That um, compilation of him saying the stuff about Sandy Hook, and remember, it was put together by Media Matters to expose what he was saying, not to, like, promote it. Um, so they're slightly better than other social media outlets, but that's a low bar. It's like being the tallest kid in kindergarten. Well, now, guys, it's, it's literally already changing in front of our eyes. So Twitter safety said the following. And this is, this is the day after Jack stepped down and this new person takes over. Twitter safety says, beginning today, we will not allow the sharing of private media such as images or videos of private individuals without their consent. Publishing people's private info is also prohibited under the policy, as is threatening or incentivizing others to do so. Now, let me break this down for you. Um, you guys know I'm a free speech absolutist. I'm the, the free speech bro. Having said that, I never, under any circumstances, said it was okay to do libel, slander, defamation, um, direct threats of violence, and I'd even add to that list doxing. Um, because that, that, that is implied in that as a direct threat of violence. So those things are not okay. So I have no issue with it. basically what they're saying. You can't dox. Great. The first thing they said there, though, we will not allow the sharing of private media, such as images or videos of private individuals without their consent. Well, hold on now. Hold on. I mean, you can interpret that in a million different ways, but one of the ways to interpret that is, so what if I share a picture that has two other people in it who are in my field and I share it and they didn't give me their express consent or whatever? Will Twitter just pull that down automatically? Okay, my guess is no. But if one of them puts in a complaint or something, maybe they pull it down then. Okay, but we're just getting started here. Under this logic, this kind of destroys journalism because the whole idea of journalism, in theory, at its best, is supposed to be to give facts, news, and information on institutions, governments, uh, powerful elites, Wall Street, the military-industrial complex, with this new policy implemented, they say we will not allow the sharing of private media such as images or videos of private individuals without their consent. I don't think almost any of the major news stories of the past few decades would be allowed given these facts. I mean, certainly you can't, for example, <clears throat> you find a politician, somebody finds out a conservative politician is in a sex scandal, and they release a picture. It doesn't even have to be new, because that, I think, would maybe be a violation of privacy, in my estimation, but just picture the person with their mistress or whatever. Under this, they say no. Under this, obviously, the Hunter Biden leaks, not only would they pull it down, but they wouldn't apologize for it afterwards. they just keep it down. I'm not sure Glenn Greenwald and Edward Snowden's NSA leaks that showed the government spying on all of us illegally and unconstitutionally, I'm not sure that would get through this. I'm definitely sure that... The, the WikiLeaks of the DNC emails where we learned about all the fuckery behind the scenes, how they were trying to screw Bernie Sanders and just give the election to Hillary, never would they allow that because they would say, look, this is private uh, you know, communications between individuals and you're not allowed to post it. Even if it's exposing the powerful and it's something that the public has a right to know, they would say, no, we don't want to do it. So, I mean, this is a disaster. 
this is exactly what uh, Agrawal said he was going to do, which is we're not going to be as committed to free speech. We're much more committed to what was the, the terminology he uses? I don't want to put words in his mouth. He said, our role is not to be bound by the First Amendment, focusing less on thinking about free speech, but thinking about how the times have changed. He goes on to say something about, like, foster, because I, I went to go check the quote to make sure it wasn't out of context and they weren't, like, misconstruing it. No, it's, that's in context. He was like, we need to foster a, a positive environment or something to that effect. Well, sometimes uh, there are debates that go on, and people have passionate takes, and people are not having a pleasant time, but that's part of being a human and being an adult and being alive and fleshing out ideas. They don't want that. I, look, the trend is going to get worse and worse and worse. I, I truly believe that. <clears throat> We've experienced it firsthand at this show. As soon as YouTube rolled out uh, their new rules, after all the bitching and the moaning from media about, oh, the spread of misinformation and disinformation, which is a real problem. I'm not saying that that stuff is not a real problem. Of course it is, whether it's QAnon or January 6th stuff or Russiagate, whatever it is. Like, there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation, but you can't create a ministry of truth because who's going to fact-check the fact-checkers? Who's going to watch the watchmen? They get shit wrong all the time. So as soon as they rolled that out, of course, all of independent media and new media took a hit because now in the algorithm they prioritize authoritative news sources. Now, I have a YouTube rep, lovely guy. He swears up and down that's not what's happening. I don't even think they tell the YouTube reps the truth. I think they keep them in the dark because their whole idea is like, look, go please the content creators no matter what. And so I'm not saying it's nefarious. I think my YouTube rep truly believes that there's not some sort of hierarchy. But when I've been doing this for a decade and I know the way the waves of growth work, of course, election years you gain a lot more subs than non-election years. Um, but there is, once you hit a certain point of growth, you do have exponential growth, and you do have like a, almost a guaranteed amount of spreading to new people and new subscribers. And it, not just for me, but others in this space, we hit a fucking wall. And we hit a wall because now we're just shown to fewer new people. So there's not as big of a pool of new people to come look at the show and you got nowhere to go. There's no growth. But they justify that and rationalize that by saying, look, they're independent media, they're new media, we don't know what they're saying, we can't trust them, a lot of people lie, a lot of people spread misinformation and disinformation, there's been a thousand hit pieces on us over that, we want to please the advertisers and get the media off our back, so let's just prioritize CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and call it a day. So in other words, the same thing people were trying to escape when they left traditional media, now they're being forced fed it here. So, and that, I'm just, that's just YouTube I'm talking about. Obviously, Twitter has its own problems. Facebook, in some ways, Facebook has the opposite problem. Um, it, they actually prioritize some of the worst charlatans, <laughs> like the far-right outlets, whether it's Daily Wire or whatever. Um, they're always in the top ten. So, what we're dealing with here is not good. Again, I think the trend is going to get worse and worse and worse. Uh, less free speech, less open dialogue, more force-feeding in certain narratives. And I really do think that they smugly think they're protecting the country by clamping down on misinformation and disinformation. And I think they're truly naive and ignorant to the fact that oftentimes misinformation and disinformation comes directly from the so-called authoritative sources. That's what happened with Russiagate. Turns out it was total bullshit. By the way, that fact has now come to fruition. I used to be one of just a handful of people who were saying, this is all bullshit on the left. Well, now there's been reporting Politico elsewhere the whole Steele dossier, it, it, it's imploded. There were hundreds of thousands of dollars were paid. Literally, Democratic operatives came up with the idea that, uh, oh, uh, Trump is Putin's puppet, and, and here's the evidence of it. It was all made up. It was totally made up. Now that's all coming to light. So that was the dominant narrative in the media for years. They were spreading misinformation and disinformation. There will be no reckoning for that. And they'll still be propped up as the gold standard of news. Look at every war. Brian Williams was praising the beauty of our missiles as they launched at Syria. 
How's that not, you know, promoting violence or whatever? How's that not a misleading narrative? How's it not a misleading narrative to build a propaganda case for the Pentagon and the CIA every time they want to go to war based on things that we know are not true now? So uh, there is a misinformation problem and a disinformation problem, and it comes from every corner of the Internet. You know, I'm not downplaying the horrendous impact of the Stop the Steal bullshit and the QAnon stuff, this brainwashing of people that leads them to political extremes. I'm not downplaying that at all. That's a horrendous problem. It's also a horrendous problem that the authoritative news sources are not authoritative at all, and they have their own conspiracies. But I think that they really think, oh, no, we've got to keep the bad guys at bay, and so that's why we're doing this. And um, I don't foresee it getting better, and that's a shame. All right, next. Okay. I didn't have. I don't have my seltzer next to me today. Boo! I gotta get that. I gotta take a break and get that soon. All right, here we go. So here we go. We have the case of. I don't know how to pronounce her name still. I've heard it pronounced a number of different ways. Gislaine Maxwell, Gislaine Maxwell. I've even heard Gislaine Maxwell, which almost too appropriate in a creepy way for uh, what she's accused of. So it's her trial right now, um, and we're already getting some incredible little nuggets of information, bro. Take a look at this. Justin, Epstein's pilot names Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Prince Andrew, Kevin Spacey, and others at the Gislaine Maxwell trial. Here we go. Here we go, y'all. Uh, now, what I find hilarious about this, we already knew this to one extent or another. We did. But what I find hilarious about this is all of the uh, hardcore right-wingers will swear up and down that, you know, their boy didn't do anything wrong. Trump cut off uh, Epstein as soon as he realized how creepy he was. This is stuff they actually believe in say. Um, and then you have the Democratic partisans who say, Bill Clinton, well, to be fair, there are more people on the Democratic side who admit Bill Clinton's creepy as fuck and is probably guilty of all this stuff. But there are some who are like, no, just, just focus on the Trump one, just focus on the Trump one. I'm here to tell you the truth, and that is both of these dudes are creepy as hell. And um, I'm sure we're involved in unimaginable things. Prince Andrew, we know the specifics about that dude. I mean, you have people coming out accusing him, and he tried to go on TV to smooth it over and act like it didn't happen, and he only made it worse for himself. Kevin Spacey? You know what I found? And you guys tell me if I'm wrong on this. But uh, Kevin Spacey is a great example. Whenever you have people who end up playing really creepy characters in a TV show or a movie, like what was the one Kevin Spacey was in, American Beauty, I think it was called? They play creepy characters on, TV, on a TV show or, or in a movie, and then they end up in real life being sort of creepy. And there's some stories that come out about, like, oh, like when, what's his face? Chris D'Elia, I think his name is, a comedian, where he played on, on a show. Was it on the show You? He played this creepy sort of pedo-type dude, and then in real life there were all these allegations that came out against him. I digress from that point, but it, it is, that is weird to me. It's like they see the role, and they're like, I sort of feel like that in real life, so let me, let me do that. Anyway. Um, there's a, look, uh, what's the guy's name? Alan Dershowitz, he's another one who is, has been implicated, and he's going on the offense legally and, like, trying to sue and clear his name, and the more he does it, the less people believe him. And there was a documentary on Epstein that I watched that was very eye-opening 
about the extent of what was going on. So let, let's put this in as, as plain language as possible. Jeffrey Epstein was the CEO, effectively, of Elite Sex Crimes Incorporated. And so that dude knows where all the bodies are buried, knows all the things that went on with all the rich, powerful, famous people. And so that's why you had unanimous agreement on the left and right that this motherfucker did it we didn't kill himself. There's no way he killed himself. Somebody axed him. And the joke I made on Twitter when I saw this thing about the pilot is, rest in peace to this pilot, because I'm sure there's a target on his back at this moment. And, uh, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell was Epstein's right-hand woman. And so she knows everything. So it's sort of surprising that she's still around at this current moment. Apparently, somebody wasn't able to get to her, at least not yet. So what kind of specifics are going to come out in this trial? I don't know, dog, but if you've seen any of the Epstein documentaries, you know that uh, there's a lot of dirt out there. And and what's so funny to me is you have – so there's this faction on the right that always talks about this, you know, Alex Jones types that believe that you have these um, elite pedo – sex rings, and it's like, well, here it is, and then they turn around and downplay certain aspects of it because Trump is implicated. As George Carlin said, it's a big club and you ain't in it. But this, I think, what it looks like on the outside is exactly what I think it is on the inside. Now, to be fair to the pilot, the pilot says, I personally didn't see any sexual activity going on, so he was just a pilot. Um, But a lot of the stories, I mean, one of the people who already testified in the trial was a teenage, I think 14 at the time, and... Epstein sexually assaulted her, raped her, used her as, like, his plaything. Look, the specifics of how this guy did what he did is beyond disturbing. I mean, he would literally, you know, they would, like, troll middle schools and, and high schools, and um, they would recruit one, and then when they recruit one, one they would tell them, do you, your friends want to make money, and they would bring them in, into the fold. And it was, it was just you know, elite sex crimes incorporated and oftentimes with underage women. And this guy, the other question is, how did this guy get in such close proximity to these very rich and powerful people? Now, there's the cover story, which there's at least some truth in, and then there's potentially the back, um, the background story. And the cover story is he, he sort of snuggled up and got close to uh, a well-known businessman. I forgot, I forget the guy's name, and I forget which businesses he ran and owned, but Snuggled up to this guy who's like a billionaire or a multi-hundred millionaire, and um, the, the guy only trusted Epstein, and so that's how he was able to get his wealth, and that's how he was able to get in these close circles. Um, but the other part of the story, which we've discussed previously based on other leaks, is that it's very possible he was uh, either involved with U.S. intelligence or Israeli intelligence. And, in fact, there was, uh, I think, Steve, there was an article that came out recently. Steve Bannon apparently said behind the scenes early on when Trump was running, that Epstein was the only person he was afraid of. And Epstein was like, you should have been. You should be afraid of me. This was before he was locked up, obviously. Um, and in the room at the time was a former Israeli prime minister. Why is a former Israeli prime minister just chilling with Jeffrey Epstein? Maybe, just maybe, it's because he was Israeli intelligence. And it was a way for the Israeli government to get dirt on American elites and also 
uh, be able to hold, hold things over their head lest they deliver on the, uh, the various things that the U.S. supplies to Israel, whether it be weapon systems, Iron Dome, money, whatever. So we, I mean, I want to get to the bottom of this. I want to know all the facts of what went down, and I don't know if we're ever going to get all of them, but suffice to say, we already know this is the elite sex crimes pedo institute, and a lot of people are guilty. And I'm sure a whole list of who was involved, I don't know if we'll ever get that. I don't know if we'll ever have the details of all of it, but um, people deserve to know what these uh, supposed leaders of society are up to. And at least now we're getting a drip, drip, drip of information. Because, by the way, one of the things everybody thought, oh, the logs showed that Bill Clinton was always on Epstein's plane, so people knew that to some extent. But the Trump people always said, look, Trump's name is not mentioned, at least not often. So... But we know that Trump was friends with Epstein because there's videos of it and there's pictures of them and, you know, there's a famous picture of Epstein at some wedding or whatever with Trump and Trump's like, I think that one's hot and he's dancing and shit and it's like, ugh. Um, no, apparently Trump was on that plane too. And there's a reason why Bannon was afraid of Epstein coming out. So, it's gross, man. So gross. Um, so I hope uh, just Lane goes down and uh, I hope we get more information, but... The almighty George Carlin, yet again, turns out to be correct. Big club, you ain't in it, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. All right. Next. Inez Cantor is uh, an NBA player. He's played for a number of different teams. And he's very outspoken. He's Turkish, and um, he just now became an American citizen. And he talks a lot about political issues. Uh, one of the things he's brought up a number of times is this idea that, look, China is repressive. They're authoritarian. What they do is not okay. And you have somebody like LeBron James, who's obviously the most famous player in basketball currently, and um, he sort of genuflects at the altar of China because they have business deals together and he has no criticism for them. All the while he talks about, you know, Black Lives Matter and social issues and gets political here. And he sees, you know, there's a, there's a contradiction there and he sees uh, an issue there. He sees a massive blind spot and so he calls that out. Now, as time has gone by, his criticism has gotten sharper, but then his criticism has also started to go overreach at times. And now, last time I saw, I mean, he's shooting his guns in every which direction at foreign governments that he considers dictatorial and he considers tyrannical. Well, he just became an American citizen. He celebrated that by going on Tucker Carlson. And, man, did he say something here that caught my eye. Take a look. Um, how have your teammates responded? Do you think they're as grateful to the Americans as you are? I mean, my teammates actually, you know, were really happy for me because they knew the struggle that I had the last, you know, six years. Uh, you know, it was a funny joke in the beginning because they were calling me Mr. Freedom and now it became a reality. But uh, I think my teammates were like the, the one that, you know, was my, like my brothers, you know. Um, it was just so amazing because their support gave me so much hope and motivation to fight and fight for what I was right. So I definitely give a lot of credit to my teammates. It seems like people who move here from countries that are not free appreciate the freedoms here much more than a lot of us who grew up with those freedoms. Have you noticed that? 
know, I feel like I'm going to just say this, and I'm going to be honest. People should feel really blessed and lucky to be in this, being in America because, you know, they love to criticize it. But when you live in a country like Turkey or, or you know, China or somewhere else, you will appreciate the freedoms you have here. Yes. You know, so I feel like they should just clear, they, they should just keep their mouth shut and stop criticizing the greatest nation in the world, and they should focus on, you know, the, their freedoms and their human rights and their, their democracy. So this is, America gave me everything I have, so I definitely appreciate the United States of America. That's how I feel. We're putting it. That's how I feel. Thank you, Tucker, for your deep insight. By the way, Tucker, of course, was a supporter of Donald Trump, whose slogan was, make America great again. As in, it ain't great right now. We have way too many problems. As Trump used to talk, the country's falling apart. It's terrible. we got to fix this. Tucker supported it when Trump says it, but when anybody, not only on the left, says it, he's like, whoa, 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 you don't hate America? Love it or leave it. Love it or leave it. Massive hypocrisy, complete contradiction, and this, I mean, look, this stuff is stupid. This is a low IQ nonsense. Let me break this down for you in a number of different ways. Do I have a problem with Inez Cantor calling out repressive foreign governments, tyranny, dictatorial actions? I don't. I don't. Now, I'm sure there are instances where he would, you know, point his cannons at a foreign government and say, well, this thing they're doing is tyrannical. Maybe I look at it and say, no, I don't think you're actually right about that. I think maybe um, that's an unfair criticism. But look, some of his criticisms are totally fair. I have no love for Erdogan. I have no love uh, that that's the leader of Turkey. Uh, he is, uh, you know, theocratic, authoritarian in many respects. I have no love for uh, the Chinese government, I, and I don't like it when lefties fall into this this trap of because China describes themselves as a communist regime, they're nominally leftist. Therefore, they their their stance is against American imperialism. So now they're just a good guy, bad guy dynamic. So like China good, uh, America bad. I think that's black and white thinking. I think it's silly. That's not to say that every criticism of China is legit, but there are plenty of criticisms of China that are legit. So I have no problem with him criticizing other governments. That's totally fine. What I do have a massive problem with is what he just said right there, which is honestly flat-out propaganda, rah-rah America propaganda. Be quiet about this country and just appreciate the freedom. Be quiet about this country. So the principle that you use when evaluating other countries is be skeptical, uh, evaluate the actions objectively and say what you think is wrong and how to fix it. But this country is somehow off limits. Just uh, appreciate the, the human rights and the freedoms that you have here. Well, what about the areas where we fall front, where we fall short? And we don't have the human rights we deserve, and we don't have the freedom we deserve. Shut up and don't criticize this country? Who are you kidding? Okay, let me just give one example. You talk, oh, freedom. He literally changed his name to Inez Cantor Freedom. Hey, Inez Cantor, is it freedom if somebody in this country chooses to I don't want to hurt anybody else. I'm going to put a substance in my own body because I choose to. And then they get caught doing that, and then they get thrown in a cage for years. Is that freedom? Is that what freedom is? We're going to lock you in a cage and throw away the key. You're going to be locked up for years because you decided to either sell a substance that somebody voluntarily wanted to put in their body, or you put a substance in your body. This is a drug war. This is a tough-on-crime nonsense. They didn't hurt anybody. I would argue that it's right smack dab square in the middle of what freedom is. Put in your body, whatever you want to put in your body, as long as you're not hurting anybody else. So, and, and by the way, this country, we lock up way more people than in any other country. How is that not authoritarian? Is that not authoritarian? I'm asking you. I think it is authoritarian. You know what else is authoritarian? Uh, Guantanamo Bay, which is still open. We illegally 
illegally and unconstitutionally locked up people with no evidence, no trial, no due process, and said, bah, we think you're with al-Qaeda, so you're locked up. Now, it turns out, a lot of people we locked up were not with al-Qaeda. And, by the way, this is why you need a trial and you need due process, because you can't just trust the authorities when they say, Court, we think this about you. Prove it. Prove it. That's the Enlightenment. That's civilization. That's the way it's supposed to work. But we didn't do it. But Ed Cantor says, shut up and don't talk about it. Don't talk about that. Don't, talk, don't criticize America. So don't, what about illegal and offensive wars that attacked a country that didn't attack us and let you hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians dying? What about that? What about the fact, Ed Cantor, that it is a stone-cold fact that the U.S. militarily supports 73% of the world's dictatorships? If you're so, so against, you know, tyranny and dictatorships and you hate it when people crack down on freedom, what do you have to say about Israel? What do you have to say about Saudi Arabia, which, you know, puts you to death if you're gay? They'll behead you in the public square for witchcraft and sorcery and apostasy. Do you have anything to say about apartheid in Israel? Anything to say about that at all? Look, I don't... People need to not be ideological zombies. And so what that means is don't just throw in, don't just do this bandwagon effect where you throw in with a group of people and say, I'm going to believe what these people believe because I like them the most or, you know, this is where my life experience has led me to. No. You have to evaluate issues objectively and on their own merit and take everything on a case-by-case basis. So, again, I have no problem whatsoever. You want to criticize repressive regimes around the world. You want to criticize tyranny. You want to criticize you know, uh, effectively indentured servitude or, or wage slave labor. I have no problem with that. You know, I would, I would immediately stop outsourcing and I try to untangle our supply chain from China because I want to reinvigorate American manufacturing. Now, somebody turn around and say, well, you're being anti-China if you do that. Bullshit. I'm being pro-American worker if I'm doing that. I have no problem with criticisms of tyranny. What I have a problem with is colossal blind spots that you're open about and you're broadcasting to the world. Now, and by the way, I'm, what I'm not arguing is everything about America is bad. Of course not. There are plenty of aspect, aspects of America that I love, and that's one of my big um, issues with the debate we have around education. You know, you have the left-wing approach to education, the 1619 Project, which does have just flat-out factual inaccuracies involved in the 1619 Project, but this idea that, well, America was just founded on racism, and it is wholly racist, and that's like the end of the conversation. Then you have the right-wing approach of, like, downplay all the negative parts about America completely, and let's just teach this puppies and rainbows idea that America is the greatest nation in the world and American exceptionalism is wonderful, and which, uh, what's another way to describe American exceptionalism? American supremacy. So you have the bigoted outlook towards every other country in the world, and you're like, we're the best. Why? Because we're the best, because that's what we were taught. Well, that's nonsense, and that's what every other country is taught. So one of my big problems with education is there's a, a, a strident lack of objectivity in any real sense. A- any uh, education system worth a shit would teach in the United States of America slavery, Jim Crow, Native American genocide, Japanese internment, nuking of innocent civilians in Japan. But at the same time, it would also teach the Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King, the Marshall Plan, the New Deal, the case law on free speech, which makes us the greatest free speech nation on the planet, so on and so forth. So all the facts matter. But what Annette Cantor is saying is, no, they don't. The only facts that matter are the ones I choose to focus on with my narrow worldview where I say all these other governments are tyrannical and bad. The official state enemies of the U.S. are bad, and here's why. But don't criticize the United States of America. Shut up and support your human rights and your freedom here. Even in instances where we actually are not free, 
and we're not abiding by human rights. And for the love of God, we have literally put our middle finger up to the International Criminal Court and said, we don't have to abide by your bullshit because we have a big military, so fuck off. We were sanctioning medicine going into Iran, and the International Criminal Court said, you can't do that. And then we turned around and said, okay, stop us with your army. Oh, that's right. You don't have an army, bitch. So it looks like we're going to keep sanctioning the medicine going into Iran. How does that sound to you? Does that sound like we're abiding by freedom and, uh, and justice and law and order and human rights? No. So it's, it's annoying and it's bullshit. And they're making him this right-wing hero. Why? Because he's going to criticize the official enemy baddie state. That's why. That's why. So he's posturing as this edgy outsider truth teller when really he's a moron with a colossal blind spot that he wholly embraces. I have no interest in it. Okay. Next. So Lauren Boebert, Representative Lauren Boebert, or as I like to call her, uh, Dollar Store Marjorie Taylor Greene, she uh, stepped in a little bit of hot water recently. And stepped in hot water, is that even the way the phrase goes? I don't think that's the way the phrase goes. Whatever, you understand what I'm saying, so it doesn't really matter if I get it right or wrong. Um, She has been going around at all these like right-wing events and telling this story, it was totally made up, about Ilhan Omar. She tells this story about... um, Ilhan Omar was in the elevator with me, and I was scared until I looked over and saw she wasn't wearing a backpack, and she didn't drop it and run, so I'm safe. In other words, I thought this congressperson was a terrorist, but it's okay. She's not because she's not wearing a backpack, so we're good ski. She literally calls uh, Ilhan Omar and the squad the jihad squad. I think that's maybe a, I'm going to be kind here. You think that's maybe a touch hyperbolic? There are other words we could use for it, bigoted, xenophobic, but uh, is, you think maybe that's just a, a touch too far, Lauren Boebert? Okay, well, um, Fox News can't even put their spin on this to make this sound okay. Uh, what happened was, after she was caught telling this story, it was a totally fabricated story. So Ilhan, of course, was like, the, the idea that she was in the elevator with her and whatnot. Uh, so Ilhan was like, you're making this story up, and also it's massively bigoted. What the fuck are you doing? So Lauren Boebert calls Ilhan Omar. I guess nominally, I would have, if I was Ilhan, I would expect her to be like, all right, my bad, I'm, I'm sorry, I won't tell that story again. Um, I don't know if that's what happened. I don't know if she apologized initially, but either way, Ilhan was like, you need to apologize publicly because what you said is dangerous. I'm getting death threats, and this is insane. Like, do the right thing. To which Lauren Boebert responded, hell no, and then she started demanding Ilhan for an apology. Apology for what? Okay. Uh... I'll save the rest for after. Take a look at the Fox News clip on it. We have another chapter tonight in the feud between two congresswomen. One Republican who said something that even her colleagues on her side of the aisle have condemned, and one Democrat who's reacting to those remarks and pushing back. Congressional correspondent Chad Pergram tells us who's involved and what's being said tonight. Good evening, Chad. Good evening, Brett. There was a call today between the congresswomen. It lasted about two minutes. It did not go well. 
I will continue to fearlessly put America first, never sympathizing with terrorists. Unfortunately, Ilhan can't say the same thing, and our country is worse off for it. Lauren Boebert said she wanted a meeting, but Ilhan Omar made it clear that would not happen. Both parties tell Fox there were no raised voices on the call. Boebert tells Fox Omar hung up on her. Omar's office says it was clear the call wasn't going anywhere. Omar says Boebert doubled down on her remarks. Boebert said she wants Omar to apologize for anti-Semitic and anti-police rhetoric. Omar's office tells Fox the Minnesota Democrat announced she was ending the call, then hung up. This remark is what sparked the dispute. And look to my left, and there she is, Ilhan Omar. And I said, well, she doesn't have a backpack, but she'll be fine. Bobert also referred to Omar as a member of the, quote, jihad squad on the House floor earlier this month. Democratic leaders demanded the GOP, quote, take real action to confront racism. Democrats have tinkered with trying to censure Bobert and remove her from committees. The House already voted to strip Republicans Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar of their committee assignments. So now Ilhan is getting death threats. And she called a press conference and played one of the voicemails of the death threats, and you got everything in there. You got N-word, you know, terrorist, uh, we're going to come get you, I promise you, all that stuff. And this is a direct result of what Lauren Boebert is saying. She is, uh, you know ramping up anti-Muslim sentiment in the country, and it's not even debatable. It's not even debatable. You know, you can imagine an analog of, like, you know, if she gets in, into an elevator with some black lawmaker, and she told a story where she's like, at least I see he's not packing heat, so he's not going to rob me, because you know how that black-on-black crime is. If she said that, what would the reaction be? You know? What would happen? Or if she got into an elevator with a Jewish lawmaker, and she was like, well, at least he didn't shake me down for money, because you know how those Jews are with money. What would go down in that situation? But it's so flippant and so casual when it comes to Ilhan Omar. And even, like, the idea that she makes a video afterwards and talks about, can't say that she doesn't sympathize with terrorists, you know that what you're saying is completely utter horseshit. You're aware of that. And you may or may not be aware of the implications, but either way, the implications are death threats and rising hatred and bigotry. And this is like, where does this come from? Well, it comes from the fact that Ilhan is Muslim. She's Muslim. So they immediately think, terrorism. Exactly. And it also comes from the fact that she bothers to make thoughtful arguments about what's going on in this country with the war on terror. You know, this is a point that Noam Chomsky's made, Glenn Greenwald's made, I've made it. There's... There's this thing that we do, which leads to blowback. Even Ron Paul talks about this, where, you know, you waged the war on terror and you killed so many innocent civilians, and you made it so that there were more people in the Muslim world, maybe they lost an aunt or an uncle or a child or whatever, and now they're more likely to turn to extremism. You are fanning the flames of the fire and making the situation worse by giving people a stronger recruitment tool, and a stronger argument. So when Ilhan Omar points out, let's not make this problem worse, let's not bomb innocent people and further radicalize disaffected youth in the Muslim world who maybe lost a family member or something, that's a, that's a 
factual and accurate point and one that's easily understood by anybody who doesn't have oatmeal for brains. But if Ilhan makes a point like that, it's you, you support Al-Qaeda. Even all the other stuff she said, too, is total bullshit. Like, you apologize for your, what, anti-American rhetoric. Fuck out of here. This idea, like, if you disagree with me on a policy or you disagree with me on how we diagnose a problem, therefore you are definitionally anti-American, is the dumbest form of discourse there is. I can, it doesn't matter who I talk to. I can talk to my biggest enemy on the planet politically. And I'm not just going to take whatever they say, twist it, and say, you must just hate America. Is that really something that's reasonable to you? The idea, your anti-police rhetoric. Listen, I have problems with the slogan, defund the police. I think it's dumb. It pulls at 18%. I don't know what Ilhan thinks about that particular slogan. I don't know. Maybe she supports it. Maybe she used the rhetoric or whatever. But if you bother to read any of the literature, the people who say defund the police, what are they actually saying? Cut the police budget like 50%, put 50% towards social work and 50% towards actual law enforcement, and that is, quote, unquote, defunding the police. Now, we can have a conversation on the merits of that policy, but let's have a conversation on the merits of that policy. Don't pretend like it's fucking anti-police bigotry or some dumb shit, because it's not. For once in your life, Lauren Boebert, and any moron who's gone down this rabbit hole on the right, just own up to it. Be like, you know what? My bad. I am I'm unfairly tarring a fellow congressperson, equating her with terrorists and jihadists, and that is dangerous and leading to death threats. I'm sure Ilhan Omar needs 24-7 security because of the hatred that is stoked by idiots like Lauren Boebert. It's all fun and games until somebody gets killed. So, look I, I, look, I don't think it's difficult. I think you absolutely have to do some sort of official rebuke or, or, or censure or, I don't know if she's on any committees, but lose whatever committee assignment she has, because there are real-world consequences to this. I have zero problem with robust debate and disagreement, and you could passionately yell at each other and, and argue with each other and have wildly differing views on stuff. But the issue I have is, Number one, just a complete utter straw man of anything that your opponent believes, which is exactly what Lauren Boebert does to Ilhan, Ober, uh, Ilhan Omar. But beyond that, um, it's the, the carelessness and the spreading of rampant bigotry and xenophobia and prejudice by comparing her to al-Qaeda or jihadists or terrorists. And if you don't think that goes too far, I, don't, I simply don't know how to get through you. I think that's flat-out TFG not even close. It's just TFG. That's all it is. Too far gone. It's, there's, no, there's no getting through to you if you're like, no, I think what she did is fine and reasonable. Okay. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, completely loathsome. Even Fox News can't put a spin on it, and therefore, I'm sure they will continue to double down, triple down, quadruple down, and not stop until there's an actual physical attempt on somebody's life and somebody gets hurt. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, got a lot more, including Biden caught faking uh, vaccine. Uh, Biden caught faking support for a vaccine patent waiver. We got that and much more. Stay right there, y'all.
by the same token. This is exactly what's happening here. Let's have a, a TRIPS waiver so any facility that can make a generic COVID-19 vaccine can make it, and uh, Moderna and Pfizer will release their recipes so everybody knows how to make it. And that was the proposal. And Biden's like, I support a waiver, not the waiver. And then when it comes time to actually negotiate it, he's like, he's already found. He drags his feet. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. And he, so in other words, he tried to get the initial PR of, I support a vaccine patent waiver, and he got it, and then doesn't do anything for it. So he got the good round of press and did nothing. What does that remind you of? Another thing to remind you of. Uh, we're going to stop helping Saudi Arabia offensively bomb Yemen. Everybody's like, hooray! Yay, Joe! Then what do we find out? Well, look at the wording. Offensively bomb Yemen. So in other words, they'll defensively help them, so they're still going to give Saudi Arabia weapons, and then Saudi Arabia turns around, and any time they drop a bomb, no matter if it's on a school or a mosque or whatever, they, they go, that was defensive. And the U.S. goes, oh, okay, anyway, here's more weapons. This is what we're dealing with. It is rampant, gargantuan dishonesty. And listen, I'm not going to mince words here. To not support the TRIPS waiver is flat-out genocidal, because this means millions more people are going to get COVID, and hundreds of thousands or millions more will die simply to protect the profits of Big Pharma. That's the scandal that's going on right now. And then, of course, you have this giant scam being led by Bill Gates, this COVAX program. We're going to vaccinate, you know, the world. Well, then when you look at their, the number that they actually wanted to vaccinate, what do they want to get, like a billion vaccines out there? What, what are there, 7 billion people in the world, more than 7 billion? And your goal through charity is we're going to vaccinate a billion people? You need to vaccinate the world so we don't get more variants. And then eventually it's going to come back to kick everybody in the ass, but maybe they don't care about the death, maybe they don't care about the destruction, the destruction, because then you're reliant to keep going back to Big Pharma to keep getting vaccines, which means more profits for Big Pharma. So that's the, the real scandal here, because people have gotten lost in the weeds of all this anti-vax horseshit, okay? The vaccines work. A study in France of over 20 million people came out. Uh, the vaccines gave us 90% protection from severe illness, hospitalization, and death. They fucking work, okay? And I don't care any anecdotes you want to throw my way. For every anecdote you give me, there's 17 anecdotes on the other side. That's the whole point of looking at micro data, macro data versus micro data. So, but, but there is a conspiracy going on here. There is a scandal here. And the scandal here is they are not vaccinating the developing world. They're not doing it. Something like anywhere from 3 to 7% of Africa is vaccinated. So many countries are, have not hit a decent threshold of vaccination. And it's not just because of the anti-vax sentiment. It's because they don't have access to the vaccines. So, you know, the, the developing world is largely hoarding them, and everybody else is screwed. And so you're going to have the virus mutate unabated and uninhibited. And so you need to, to, to vaccinate the world. You need to support a TRIPS waiver. Now, then there's this other bullshit talking point from Big Pharma. Well, anybody who can make the vaccine is already making the vaccine. Bullshit! 
Bullshit. We know of direct stories in India, elsewhere. They're like, we can make the vaccine. We need the recipe for it, and we need to know you're not going to sue the shit out of us if we do it. Waive the patent protection. And now you have some places that are, they're trying to reverse engineer the vaccine. Because, you know, if Pfizer or Moderna just gives them their recipe, well, that would hurt Pfizer and Moderna's profits. So now they're trying to reverse engineer the vaccine, so it's taking way longer. This is beyond a scandal. And Joe Biden just got the optic, optics win. I support a vaccine waiver. And then he didn't say sports the waiver, so he wants new terms, but then they don't even negotiate their terms, and they're dragging their fucking feet. Jesus Christ, man. I mean, in my mind, this is immoral, unethical, and it should be prosecutable, what's going on here. And, you know, if, not that all of you guys didn't understand the, the deleterious impact of money in politics, but here it is, front and center, in the most grotesque and stark way imaginable. This is the impact of money in politics. When Big Pharma buys the government in the United States, they will literally side with Big Pharma and their profits over saving hundreds of thousands or millions of lives in the developing world. And you wonder why people lose hope and feel nihilistic and are doomers. You look, I'm against doomerism and nihilism, but I understand where the feeling comes from. Of course I understand where it comes from. How can you not when you look at a story like this? So, Jesus Christ. Vaccinate the world, man. Vaccinate the world. Lift the patent protections. Sign on to the TRIPS waiver. And they can get to making that vaccine today, son. Today. And it'll save lives. If not, okay. This pandemic is going to become endemic, and we're going to be living with it for fucking ever, and there's going to be a new variant, whatever, every year, every two years. And, you know, hey, cross your fingers, man. Who knows when we might get a variant that is incredibly transmissible and also way more deadly. That is possible. With this, um, again, I'm going to mispronounce it. I struggle with it. My dyslexia is kicking in. Omicron variant. They say it's about 40% more transmissible, but the, the symptoms are not any worse than Delta original COVID. So it is more deadly in the sense that more people will get it. And so because of that, more people will die because more people got it. But um, it's not any worse in terms of the symptoms you get from it. So it's not the worst nightmare scenario, but there could be the worst nightmare scenario coming very soon. So, I, I mean... I don't know how to get this idea out there any more clear than I am, but for the love of God, this is a matter of life and death for the world. And no, big pharma profits went out over the world. All right, next. So this story is fun. This is as fun as it gets. Take a look. This is from the New York Post. Trump claims would-be running mates begging for spot on 2024 ticket. Now, this could just be classic Trump uh, bravado and bluster, um, but as often happens with Trump, it starts out as bravado and bluster, and then all of his little sycophants fall in line, and it becomes reality. So it's possible that they actually are bragging for it, or it's possible he's pretending that they're bragging for it, and now as a result of him saying that, they will brag for it. But at some point, or beg for it, why am I saying brag? They will, at some point they will beg for it. Um, so, 
Here's who's on the list. This is all interesting to me. Not DeSantis. Now, DeSantis is the second most popular Republican politician in the country. The reason why Trump does not want him as VP is because DeSantis has higher poll numbers than Trump. And Trump views him as competition. So DeSantis is seemingly out. Um, he also does not want Nikki Haley. Now, she was an option before, but uh, Nikki Haley has been critical of January 6th. And she also recently has been giving speeches critical of what she thinks is real populism, but is Trump's fake populism. And she's going hard on, like, the, you know, super capitalist nonsense, which doesn't sell to anybody almost at all in the country anymore. Um, now, here who, here's who is on the list. To my surprise, Tim Scott is on the list. I say to my surprise because he seems more intelligent than to hitch his wagon to this lunatic. Um, Mike Pompeo is on the list. For the love of God, pick Mike Pompeo. Job of the Hutt is not uh, a, a running mate with appeal, to say the least. You have Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, who uh, nobody even knows who she is. Even her own family is like, who's Kim Reynolds? You have Senator Marsha Blackburn. Marsha Blackburn, she's a Republican of Tennessee. Um, I actually thought, I'm dating myself here, but I thought she was in the in Congress and not the Senate. I guess she won a Senate seat. Um, she's a psychopath and hokey older lady and very far right. Uh, I don't think she's very, she would be like a Sarah Palin 2.0 type situation, so that'd be a good pick if you want the ticket to tank. And then there's also uh, the last White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, who's on the list, big Trump sycophant. Now, here's who's not on the list. Here's who's going, going, gonzo, son. Mike Pence. Mike Pence. They, they had a real breakup. They had a real falling out. And it all stems to January 6th. It all stems to stop the steal. You had the far right and Donald Trump bought into this notion that Mike Pence somehow had the ability to single-handedly not certify the election. It's total nonsense. I mean, the stuff that was going down, it, it, it was just ceremonial at that point in D.C., the idea that you're certifying the election. They thought Mike Pence could just say, I'm against this, I declare I'm not certifying it, and that he would be able to save the day, and hooray, Trump gets to stay in office. It's looney tunes. I mean, it's delusional. Uh, but that's what they believed. And so when Mike Pence didn't do that, I mean, Trump famously said, the quote came out not that long ago, uh, Mike, this was on the day, Mike, you could be a patriot or you could be a pussy. And Pence, you know, looked to his credit, which is words you'll never hear come out of my mouth ever when it comes to Mike Pence in other respects, a guy who credits his career to Rush Limbaugh, a guy who doesn't even believe in evolution. Um, but Pence was like, can't do it. Can't do it. And so that tiny last modicum and shred of decency and sincerity in Mike Pence led him to not try to do this insane move. And Trump turned on him over it. And this is the guy, remember, Mike Pence has been loyal to Trump every step of the way. Every step. He just couldn't do this one thing. And Trump was like, I, you're gone. Now, I saved the, the biggest fact for last year. Biggest fact for last. So Trump, um, previously when he ran for president, you know, the, he weighed with his staff, hey, who's my VP going to be? There were geographic concerns. There were ideological concerns. They wanted to sort of cover what, what his team viewed as his weaknesses. So his weaknesses were, you know, New York brash loudmouth uh, viewed as very non-religious. Uh, so they sort of wanted to guarantee the evangelical Christian base came out in strong numbers because that's the Republican base in many respects. So they picked somebody who's mild-mannered, uh, Midwestern, very religious. So it was like there were multiple levels of analysis as to what's the best pick for us here. Uh, this time around, they're very clear. There are, there's the, 
there are two things that matter to them. This is the criteria. Thing number one, unconditional loyalty. Not surprising for Trump. He always sort of wanted that from people. People give it to him, but then he ends up stabbing them in the back eventually. It always happens. He wants unconditional loyalty. The other thing, you ready for this? They need to denounce the 2020 election as stolen. This is his criteria for being VP. This is his criteria. You have to denounce 2020 as being stolen. We are through the looking glass now, dog. What the fuck? And, of course, I'll add this at the end. He's the favorite. He's the massive favorite. Joe Biden's a zombie. He's at a 38% approval rating. Mayor Pete's at 37%. Kamala Harris is at 28%. I don't see it. Bernie's going to be roughly 714 years old. He's been in office since Van Buren was president. Uh, AOC has no chance in a national election. Michelle Obama, nobody even knows what the hell she believes. I don't even think she wants to run. Should I keep going here? Our best bet is some um, current nobody on the national stage who can capture hearts and minds and imaginations. I'm rooting for Raphael Warnock to be great, but I don't know if he is. You know, I don't know if he's got that thing, you know. So we'll see. Um, but Mike Pence, Donald Trump, fully broken up. And that means that I don't know. If Trump runs, are they just going to clear the field for him? I don't think so. Nikki Haley's almost certainly going to run against him. Um, I think Mike Pence might, too, because if they broke up and he knows he's not going to be VP no matter what, he might just take a shot. You never know. But it's getting crazy out there, man. And this story is really something else. Trump is not playing around, and that's clear. Here we go. Next story. Little sip of my pepper, bitch. Jim Cramer, a CNBC host, um, expressed an opinion on his show. It's pretty controversial. I want to go ahead and take a look at it, and then I'll break it down. Warren knows what happened if he didn't partake. But back then, anyone who refused to get vaccinated would get ratted out. Because we knew that person could hurt other people. The Commonwealth was a Commonwealth. Now engaged in a similar struggle with COVID, Eisenhower would be gas. We have immunocompromised people who are incubators for every variant to come, walking around lawfully unvaccinated. That's psychotic. We have companies that have tried hard to get people vaccinated and now backing down. We have governors who want to be president by grandstanding on a foolish state's right issue, the right to get sick and get other people sick. So it's time to admit that we have to go to war against COVID. Require vaccination universal. Have the military run it. If you don't want to get vaccinated, you better be ready to prove your conscientious objector status in court. And even then, you need to help in the war effort by staying home until we finally beat this thing. Military-enforced universal vaccination program is what he's calling for. Military-enforced universal vaccination program. I'm out. Too far for me. It's too far. It's too far. Look, let me. Uh, before I get to my whole breakdown of it, I'll just state the obvious again for everybody. Um, get the vaccine. Get it willingly because it's the right thing to do. Uh, giant study in France, over 20 million people. Vaccines uh, reduce severe illness, hospitalization, and death from COVID by 
they work, go get it, it's the right thing to do. You don't want to think you're doing some intelligent principal thing and then maybe you get it and you spread it to somebody else who ends up dying. Uh, it's not just about you, it's about the community, it's about everybody. Um, but now to, to his point, you have to balance the community and the individual. So you have to balance individual rights with the community well-being and the collective well-being of the country. And look, it's easy for people, particularly commentators, philosophers, whatever, to just pick one side of that equation and rationalize and work backwards from their conclusion and build what sounds like a very convincing argument while they omit all the convincing arguments on the other side of it. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you that both of these things matter deeply. So as somebody who's on the left, um, some people on the left like to just prioritize the communal and the collective. But there's plenty of people on the left, particularly if you look at the political spectrum, like the, the quadrant political spectrum, people who are on the libertarian left, uh, they actually believe deeply in, in both kinds of rights. So they believe in the well-being of the community and the collective, and they believe in individual rights. And, and you as an individual person making your own decisions. And so this is not an easy uh, diagnosis for anybody on the left. So the way I look at this is, look, it's undeniably true that if everybody was vaccinated, we'd just be way, way, way better off. And there'd be very few breakthrough cases. When there is a breakthrough case, it'd be super mild, and the hospitals wouldn't be overcrowded. That's one of the biggest problems, by the way, is a hospital overcrowding. And I know firsthand because of my leg when I went to the hospital. And, you know, because of COVID, there are people who are not able to breathe or having heart attacks or going through severe withdrawal or just got blood force trauma who now can't get a fucking hospital bed. So again, is that an okay scenario? Of course that's not an okay scenario and it makes you want to go, fuck, go get vaccinated. Yeah, and enforce a, a, a universal vaccine mandate. However, having said that, the precedent that you lay there, the principle that, that you set is one I'm very uncomfortable with because you almost have to have a default level of trust in the government that they're looking out for your well-being in order to agree to such principles. Now, in this rare area, it's one of the areas where, correct, like the government's right. They were right that the smallpox vaccine was good, measles, mumps, rubella, uh, polio, like all the vaccines worked and they're good. And so this is an area where the government is correct in saying you should get this and it's the right thing. But it's also the case that the same government is responsible for grievous harms the world over. It's also the case that the U.S. for 73% of the world's dictatorships. It's also the case that you know, the CIA uh, willy-nilly overthrows democratic governments. It's also the case that we did the fucking Tuskegee experiments and the Bay of Pigs and Operation Northwoods. And so I don't, I don't have a trust in the authorities because I think that's unmerited. I think they destroyed that trust. They lie to us every day about what goes on in the world and what we should be doing and what our role is. They lied us into countless wars. But I don't have a cynicism about the system either. I understand that government can be a force for good or bad. And so the way that you split this difference and walk this line, in my estimation, is almost exactly the policy that the Biden administration came up with, which is this idea of, look, you should get vaccinated. So here's our policy. Either get vaccinated or get tested. Because I, I do not buy for a second that when you give people that option of the test, that also somehow is tyrannical or authoritarian or whatever. Well, I would say what he's calling for, what Jim Crane is calling for, it is, by definition, authoritarian. You're going to do this thing, we're going to make you do this thing, and we've got the military with a gun to your head saying do it. Well, not literally do it with a gun to your head, but he's saying if you've got to be conscientious objector, therefore, if you object and they disagree, you might have to get locked up over not getting the vaccine, or you might have to be in permanent house arrest or whatever. 
I like giving people the option and the out of you can test, because then I view that as just, it's a basic regulation. It's like saying, to disagree with that, the idea of uh, vaccinate or test, to me that's akin to somebody saying seatbelts are a tyranny, and it's, a, it's dictatorial, and it's an, it's an unreasonable infringement on my liberty, to which most people would roll their eyes and say, shut the fuck up and put your seatbelt on. I view it the same as some regulation that says a construction worker needs to wear a hard hat. And I don't think that some insane, egregious, you know, restriction of freedom. I don't. I don't think it's that at all. I think it's very reasonable. So the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals slapped down the, the Biden rule that businesses with 100 employees or more where you need to vaccinate or test. Um, it still has to go to a higher court. My guess is that a higher court, the Supreme Court namely, uh, is going to say, no, I think Biden's, uh, Biden's order here is legitimate. OSHA's order here, because they're the ones who would carry out, I guess, is legitimate. It's possible they don't, but if they don't, they won't say because you can't do that. They would say because you have to go through Congress to do it. Now, I wouldn't agree with that ruling because Congress has the power of the purse, and that's the stuff that needs to go through there. This doesn't require any money, so you can do it just through workplace regulations and do it through OSHA. But my guess is that's the way the Supreme Court's going to rule. Um, I don't know how they would rule to what Jim Cramer's saying here. It's possible they would rule that would be legal, too. And I know a lot of you guys are like, Jesus fucking Christ, like, what? But you got to understand, case law in the U.S. is crystal clear, and when it comes to vaccine issues at the Supreme Court level, they consistently ruled on the side that vaccine mandates are okay. Um, there was a 1905 case where they ruled it. Now, granted, the punishment was like a $5 fine, which at the time was maybe a little over $200 or something like that fine. But the guy was like, I'm not going to pay the fucking fine either. Um, and the Supreme Court said, no, you got to get the vaccine or pay the fine. And so there's been a number of cases, like mandatory vaccines, for example, for people in, in particularly sensitive um, fields of work. So like if you work in a nursing home, if you work in a hospital or, or whatever, the Supreme Court has upheld that you have to get the vaccine if they say you get the vaccine. Um, so, again, that's another Supreme Court decision where they say vaccine mandate, totally legal, totally constitutional. Um, but I don't know if what Jim Cramer is calling for here would be constitutional. All I know for sure is, in my opinion, this is too hard line. This leans too heavily on the argument of it's all about the collective and the community, and it doesn't factor in enough the personal and the individual. And what I would say to people, because I know people, you know, usually when I talk about this, a lot of people don't agree with it. That's fine. But what I'm begging people to do is just don't be flippant and glib in your analysis of stuff like this because um, it's really stupid if you do that. Like I said, the classic move people do is they'll pick a side of it and then they'll rationalize it and justify it and work backwards from their conclusion and argue only the stuff on the side of either the right thing for the individual to make the decision or it's the right thing for the collective in the community. As somebody who's on the left, you are always doing this complicated dance where you're balancing those two values. Because as a leftist, I care deeply about the community and the collective, but I also care deeply about the individual. And, you know, it's not easy to, to come up with an answer where there's nothing but bad options. So again, the thing I come down, and maybe I'm even a little stronger than Biden on this in this sense. His thing was like, all businesses, 100 people or more. And the reason he did it with businesses is, is so they could do it through OSHA, I think. But I have no problem with just a, a federal law or federal executive order that says get vaccinated or test. And how exactly you work out the logistics of that, I don't know. 
Um, but it would probably have to be carried out through the workplace to some extent where in every workplace it's like, look, you don't want to get the vaccine? Fine. But And the tests are not invasive at this point. It's not the one that literally goes, like, all the way up to your fucking nose and feels like it touches your brain. It's the, now they have the instant test where they just go right in your nostrils and they, they uh, put it in, you know, in 10 or 15 minutes. So I don't think that's uh, unreasonable, and I'd be fine with people having to do that probably every day uh, if they don't want to get the vaccine. But the other thing is, this is a part that, of the conversation nobody really brings up, but vaccine mandates actually work. In this sense, they work in that more people end up getting vaccinated. So there's always this, like, puffing and puffing when there's initially a vaccine mandate that's introduced where people are like, I'm not going to do it. Thousands of whatever it was. Police officers are going to resign. Then it ends up it's only, like, eight. It's like, oh, okay. So the overwhelming majority were like, all right, fine, I'll end up getting the vaccine. Um, now, again, you could say I think that's it, it's, it's coercive in a sense. It literally is. Um, but in terms of the outcome, obviously the outcome uh, ends up, getting the desired result, which is going to lead to a massive downturn in COVID, which is a positive thing. But again, you have to balance public health and safety and the collective in the community with individual rights and freedoms and decisions. And I think the proper way to split that difference here is vaccinate or test. Um, and so I definitely don't agree with Jim Cramer. Final point, the reason why Jim Cramer takes this position, and this matters, I do think, like, if you take Jim Cramer's position, I don't doubt that you, as a listener of this show, you would take that position because you genuinely care, you genuinely care about everybody's well-being and you want to end COVID. I get it. With Jim Cramer, it's just about the precious markets. The reason why he wants to force the vaccines on everybody is because he wants the economy to get back to a place where you don't have all the peaks and valleys and the ups and downs and the stock market doesn't go down whenever a new variant it comes out or whatever. Um, so he cares more about market stability, and really an extension of that is he cares more about his rich CEO buddies who want to force everybody back to work. So um, that's why I think he cares. I don't think it comes from a genuine, like, altruistic humanitarian perspective or a concern for the community and the collective, because if he cared about the community and the collective, Jim Cramer, he would also advocate for stuff like universal health care, paid family leave, higher wages, but he doesn't. He doesn't. So... Um, it's always, I, I, I know, I find this conversation fascinating. I know a lot of people who listen to this maybe don't as much as I do, but that's the whole point of being a leftist, is how do, you, how do you balance those two values? And, you know, you can see the concern for the community and the collective among leftists when it comes to what? The economy. They want more democracy in the workplace. They want work their own costs. They want to care about everybody, not just a particular individual. They want to, everybody have health care, everybody have paid family leave, everybody have free college, nobody has student loan debt. That's all about collective, collective, collective. Let's make it so the system is good and fair for everybody. But on the flip side, if you're a leftist, what else do you care about? You do care about the individual. Example, um, abortion. Hey, free choice, your decision. I don't care if, even if a majority of society says, I don't think you should be able to do that. You go, well, I don't really care if you think it because it's a right and it's my freedom and my choice. Okay, drugs. Somebody might might be a drug user, or they might put in their body whatever they want to put in their body, and they might even be addicted, and they might even have a problem, and it might even hurt their life. And you, you want to help that person, but you also think, well, you shouldn't lock that person up, you shouldn't restrict their freedom, you shouldn't take away that choice, they have that choice. So, in other words, what I'm trying to illustrate for you is there are many ways in which people on the left prioritize the individual in certain contexts with certain policies and certain conversations on certain issues, and then there's other ways in which they do it, when they prioritize the collective when it comes to issues. And, you know, that's why I've always made that distinction. Me personally, as a general rule, you can find my concern for the collective and the community more so when it comes to the economy. But at the same time, you also, you can find my concern more for the individual when it comes to social issues. Um, 
and this is a much longer conversation, but I could get into how really the connecting tissue between all of that, in my estimation, is how what I perceive freedom to be. Not just negative freedom, but also positive freedom, which is the freedom that's totally disregarded by uh, people on the right generally. So uh, that's the main, if, to the extent there's one value that leads me, it is more freedom than anything else. But the types of freedoms and, and the contours and the complexities of that argument are obviously much more than we're going to flesh out here in this segment. But there you have it. Military enforced vaccination, universal vaccination. Sorry, guys. I think that goes too far for me. Um, and I think e final thing, final, final thing. Even if you, if you agree with Jim Cramer, you at least have to acknowledge on this front, I support an authoritarian policy because that is absolutely authoritarian and there's no way to talk your way around that. All right, next. So here we go. Uh, more information on the Democrats and how the Build Back Better bill and particular policies within the Build Back Better bill have now become a joke, honestly, a joke. So go ahead and take a look at this from Jeff Stein. He says, new. The White House keeps saying Build Back Better would create universal pre-K, but very unclear if that's true. We talked to state GOP officials across the U.S., in, is that Missouri or Montana? New Hampshire, North Carolina, South Carolina, Minnesota, and more, ready to reject the plan. Pre-K goes through the states. Okay, so I'm gonna explain more about that in a second, but first look at this thing from the People's Policy Project. This is the incredible shrinking pre-K plan. So, look at this. This is the way the program works now. This is a federal contribution to state pre-K expenses. In 2022, the federal government will give $4 billion to the states, respectively. 2023, $6 billion. 2024, $8 billion. 2025, 95.44% of state costs. 2026, 79.534% of state costs. 2027, 63.627% of state costs. 2028, they give $0 for it. Okay. So let me explain what that means. The original draft of this plan was just universal pre-K. Just we fund 100% of it through the federal government, go through the states, and you're good. So, you know, you guys set up the infrastructure for it, but it's fully funded by the federal government. That would be universal pre-K. As time has gone by in the negotiations, that has shifted, that has changed. You have conservative Democrats and corrupt Democrats getting more involved in the conversation. And they got to the point where the final result was what you just saw right there. $4 billion the first year, $6 billion, $8 billion. Uh, Now... Let me explain to you how big of a scam this is now. This is nothing but a neoliberal scam. In the first year, they're giving $4 billion. Matt Bruning of the People's Policy Project um, crunched the numbers as to what is the cost per kid for universal pre-K and how much money does, ends up actually going to fund this. Well, come to find out, that this plan, which is still being discussed as universal pre-K, ultimately it funds, get ready for this, just 5 to 10% of the cost of the pre-K program. So the original proposal was the federal government funds the whole program. Now the proposal is the federal government's going to fund 5 to 10% of the program, which means that the states need to make up the difference, which would mean the states need to jack up taxes massively. According to his analysis, you actually would have a net increase in how much uh, the pre-K costs. You see the same thing 
under this plan with childcare. The childcare portion has become a scam as well. So it's been so watered down and so destroyed, and it's become such a neoliberal scam that universal pre-K is really funding 5 to 10% of pre-K and putting the onus on the states. Now, it gets deeper than that. What was Jeff Stein alluding to? Jeff Stein was alluding to the way that they crafted this bill. Because they said, just like what ended up happening with Obamacare. Now, to be fair, originally in Obamacare, they didn't say the states can decide whether or not to implement Medicare expan Medicaid expansion. Excuse me. What happened was, I believe, the Supreme Court made a ruling that said that part needs to be optional. And then when it was made optional, virtually all the red states were like, we're not going to do Medicaid expansion, bar a handful. And the blue states were like, okay, we're going to do Medicaid expansion. They're doing the same model now with pre-K. So they're saying, we're going to do universal pre-K, but really we're only funding 5 or 10% of the cost. And by the way, it needs, you need to decide in your own state if you're going to accept it. And what we're learning now is the red states are, are not going to accept it, but even some blue states are like, we're not going to do this. Probably because they look at the numbers and they say, you're only funding 5 to 10% of the shit, so we can't do it. I cannot impress upon you just how much the Democrats getting their fucking clocks cleaned in this next election is earned. I mean, this, it, it's beyond a joke. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. You start with all these big, bold proposals. I mean, de the left wanted $10, uh, $10 trillion for the bill, and then it was down to like $8 trillion, and then we got 3.5 as a compromise, and now it's down to 1.9. And even the few remaining parts that are in there, because most of it was just stripped, are just neoliberal scams. We're going to lower drug prices, but only for like 10 drugs, or maybe 50 at most, and we're going to lower it over the next five years. What? What? We're going to do universal pre-K, and by that I mean fund 5 or 10% of it and, and uh, have the states pick up the slack. And, by the way, the states can opt out, and most of them will probably opt out, or way too many of them will probably opt out. This isn't going to make anybody vote for you, because it's a scam. This is hack BS is what it is. I mean, look, they earned it. They earned, Biden earned his 38% approval rating with stuff like this. You're not going to get over on people with this. For the love of God, enough with Bill Clinton politics and Barack Obama politics. Enough, enough, enough. Do FDR politics. Not the Japanese internment camp stuff. That was fucked up. Do the New Deal stuff. Actually do big, bold, universal programs. Now, I say this stuff, and look, everybody rolls their eyes, including me. Why? Because I know it's preventing them from doing it. It's not just ideological concerns, and to some it is. It's, that's a part of it. But the biggest part is the corruption is the thing that prevents them from doing anything good. The reason why the lower prescription drug prices thing became a joke is because of the influence of big pharma money. The reason why we can't get good regulation of the financial sector is because of Wall Street. The reason why we can't get decent policy across the board when it comes to war is because of Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and the influence of the military industrial complex. Everybody knows this. If you're not going to go big and go bold, if you're not going to take on the powers that be, you're always going to have these perpetual elections where we just swing back and forth. We got these people. Okay, now we don't want this person. We got this person. Now we don't want this person. We got this party. Now we don't want this party. We got this party. Now we don't want this party. Because people are just desperately looking for an answer and swinging back and forth. And they're not going to find it. Because both parties are totally corrupted. They're owned by corporations and billionaires. And they're not interested in helping the people. And even if they do want to help the people, it literally becomes laughable. You're going to call this universal pre-K? You should literally call it 5 to 10% UK and happy you aren't even going to fucking do it. That should be the name of it. No, it's long, but it's accurate. So there you have it. It's beyond a joke. It's pathetic. They should feel ashamed 
And again, you're not going to hear this. I know uh, Breaking Points covered this. Uh, Matt Bruni did a great job covering this. Credit to Jeff Stein, who always does a wonderful job. He's like the only person at the Washington Post who's phenomenal. Um, but nobody else is even going to talk about this. And um, you're, not, you're not even going to get a full picture of just how pathetic, corrupt, ineffectual, and sad the Democratic Party is. Okay, next. So Dave Rubin, Mr. Free Speech himself, uh, turns out he got a Dave Rubin parody account censored. Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, we all use these things. Can anyone get someone on the phone? I've got, I'm pretty well connected. I've got good agents, like good lawyers, like I'm a public person. I can't, I've, we've had an account that just, that on Twitter, they selectively edit my videos to make it sound like I say things that I don't say. This is what the entire account is dedicated to, and there's thousands of followers. So I haven't done a ton on healthcare, and I should, so I'm glad you asked this question. My basic idea around healthcare is that I think it should be single payer, meaning that it should be private insurance companies, and the government should sort of be facilitating the exchange around it. Why did not one country fail? Why didn't we find one city that was completely infected and everyone died? All of this stuff, like, I'm just asking questions, okay? Of free speech, although they still have massive problems and they're still not just in favor of free speech. 
Um, but so the YouTube account for Dave Rubin clips is the thing that got axed, and it got axed because of uh, Dave and or his team claimed, well, this is just copyright infringement. Now, I've seen the Dave Rubin clip stuff. We've covered some of this stuff on this show. Um, he's, what they do is they splice up things that Dave says that are ridiculous. They put them together in a compilation, and they put it out there for the world to see. It's Dave in his own words. And there's clearly a utility to that. And it's what people do all the time with, they did it all the time with Alex Jones back in the day. Um, this is something that people do all the time with various hosts on Fox News or CNN. And it absolutely is fair use by any reasonable understanding of the, of the notion of fair use. And um, he got pulled. He got pulled. Now, I will say this, because his argument, oh, out of context, this and that. Listen, we all know that that happens, right, that people get taken out of context and uh, it can, things can be spliced in a way where it's misleading and oftentimes... It, it, it could be misleading in a way where they portray somebody making a point that's actually the opposite of the point they were making. I've seen that happen a million times. There are times I've been taken out of context or just get, people give semi-context or whatever. But even in those instances, I don't try to get it taken down. I don't. Because I'm not a little bitch. It's par for the course if you're a public figure, right? And all the stuff I've seen that they put up of Dave is not at all out of context. Is Dave Rubin saying things that are silly, uh, factually inaccurate, demonstrably wrong, uh, terrible predictions? And it doesn't matter how you try to dress it up or twist it. It's just exposing takes that he has that are terrible. And he cannot tolerate that. He cannot tolerate that. And instead of winning in the marketplace of ideas with free speech, he decided to censor and deplatform. So Dave Rubin here is doing cancel culture, canceling his critics who quote him verbatim and show his own words to the world. Pathetic. Listen, okay, look, here's what I'll say. Dave, you want to go down this path, you and your team want to do shit like this, fine. But shut the fuck up about pretending like you're in favor of free speech and you're against deplatforming and you're the ideas guy all about the marketplace of ideas. You can have your thin-skinned, censorious attitude, or you can claim to be Mr. Free Speech. You can't have both, son. You can't have both. And we all know, actions speak louder than words. You are what you do. And this is who Dave Rubin is. Ain't no free speech guy. He doesn't believe in it. He believes in it until the free speech personally impact his species, and then it's all out the window. That's what it is. That's exactly what it is. And the other thing, he was, he was complaining on Twitter. Well, there was a video that was out. He did some podcasts with some right-wing people, Michael Knowles and somebody else. And one of them brought up Sam Harris, and he's like, Sam Harris unfollowed me on Twitter, and he effectively said, so much for the tolerant left. The liberals think they're so tolerant, but apparently they're not. So he's complaining about Sam Harris unfollowing him on Twitter, Dave Rubin insta-blocks anybody who even mildly disagrees with him. I submit to you that's way more of a crackdown on the marketplace of ideas than Sam Harris following you because you never make an interesting fucking point in your entire life and you're incredibly stale. But, you know, he overlooks his own actions with his quick block finger that happens immediately. 
and he uh, goes after Sam Harris for unfollowing his sorry ass. Look, I have issues with Sam Harris, but there's no doubt Sam Harris is leagues more intelligent than Dave Rubin, and unfollowing him was probably so that he didn't have to roll, his eyes didn't have to roll in the back of his head four times a day when he sees Rubin's dumb tweets. So, by the way, you want to know the alpha move? Don't block anybody. Don't block, I've never blocked anybody on Twitter my entire time on Twitter. Is this a humble brag? You bet your fucking ass it's a humble brag, because I'm trying to live the values I espouse. Look, to one extent or another, I'm some degree of a public figure. Therefore, I think you have a right to know what I'm saying. How am I going to be a public figure but say, but you guys aren't allowed to see me in the public space. What? I think that's dumb. Like, what are we, in fucking high school? I'm going to block you. I'm going to block you. You said me words to me. Okay, then don't fucking read it. Don't read it, but you're a public figure. Let other people see your shit. Instant block. Zero fucking people I've blocked my entire time on Twitter, son. Now... It, by the way, it does not work the same way with muting. Muting is like, do you do you have a right to feed your bullshit to me? Do you have a right to force your bullshit in my cranium? To which I say, no. So I'll mute the shit out of you if need be, but I don't even read my shit anymore, so I don't even need to mute anybody anymore. I haven't muted anybody in a long time because I just don't read the reactions. But um, blocking is like next level. And I, it's just the biggest hypocrite in the world, and, and it's so obvious, and he's so sad. He's so fragile because, look, deep down, I think he knows that he's in over his head. You know? He, he's like the only commentator that you can think of who has done a total 180 on every fucking issue. Every issue. And I've said this before. You guys know. Listen, you're a human. You learn, you adopt, you grow. It happens. We all evolve. So if you tell me, this is what I believed when I was 19 years old. And then, look, by the time I'm 30, yeah, I evolved, man. And, you know, maybe there's three issues that I've t- totally changed my mind on. Maybe there's my whole philosophical outlook changed where I had a certain value set, but now that value set has evolved. But here's what doesn't happen in the real world, very often at all. You're a public figure, and you change your mind on every single issue. Everyone. So you're telling me you were just six years ago, you are the opposite person now that you were then. That is mighty convenient. That is, one would either call it completely flip-flopping or maybe just trying to find a niche for reasons other than intellectual honesty, let's say. So, anyway, bring back uh, Dave Rubin clips. Look, it's par for the course. If you're a public figure, there are going to be some people who hate you. There are going to be some people who even take you out of context. But, um well, Dave Rubin Cliff certainly doesn't like Dave Rubin, they're not taking him out of context, which makes it extra egregious. So, and look, and it's not just me, man. There are plenty of people who have the same opinion as me on this stuff who are also public figures where even if they are being taken out of context, they're like, all right, spark for the course, what are you going to do? We don't like it. I don't like it. You know, if need be, I'd rebut shit, but I'm not going to try to get in a fucking account poll. What kind of bitch shit is that? Is Dave Rubin bitch shit. All right, next. This story is quite surprising if I don't say so myself. Take a look at this. This is from Air Wars, who's tracked this stuff very closely. Declared strikes by U.S. President in Iraq and Syria. Look at the difference. So Barack Obama led the way with airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. Then was Donald Trump. 
You could look at the, the strikes over 16,000 for Obama, right at 16,000 for Donald Trump. Joe Biden in Iraq and Syria, nothing. Now, I'm going to give you all the qualifiers after this, so bear with me because I think all the facts are important here. But the United States and its 13 kinetic allies, part of an international alliance usually known as the coalition, began an extensive campaign against the so-called Islamic State, blah, 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 blah. You get the deal. Um, there were more than 34,000 airstrikes, air and artillery strikes. Now, you say, well, Kyle, how does that uh, translate into civilian deaths? We'll take a look. Civilian deaths by U.S. president in Iraq and Syria. So under Barack Obama, we have over 5,000, nearly 6,000 civilian deaths. This is the drone war we're talking about here. Donald Trump, over 13,000 civilian deaths because he got rid of a lot of the, whatever meager rules remained, Donald Trump axed those rules. Joe Biden, nothing. Now, uh, let's get, let's talk about this a little more because now at first I was like, okay, well this source is questionable. But the source isn't really all that questionable because this is the source that we got the original news on the drone war from. Now, Daniel Hale gave us the fact that 90% of the time they're killing innocent people with drones under the Obama administration. Um, Trump increased, uh, as you can see, the number of civilian deaths. But I also had read that Trump increased the number of drone strikes by 432%. And that doesn't really reflect in these numbers. So Air Wars was the source for this stuff early on. It looks like they're still tracking this stuff closely. But there's also this problem. We know that uh, Donald Trump got rid of the um, basically reporting requirements for the airstrikes. So on his way out the door, he was like, you don't even have to you know, calculate the number of strikes and calculate the number of civilian deaths. We're just going to act that completely. So in other words, the president can do all these things with impunity, and you don't even need to know what's going on. So that's one problem. Another problem is there have been reports in print outlets, and again, print always does a better job than TV. So, and in print outlets, they say, we've covered stories where, you know, he's bombed Somalia, he's bombed Yemen. And by the way, they go on with other charts, and it shows there have been civilian deaths in, in Yemen and, and Somalia and uh, some other places. But we did hear about a strike in Syria where 80 people were killed. There was reporting on that. Of course, we know about the Afghanistan strike. Now, Afghanistan wasn't in this chart, but the Afghanistan strike, they killed a number of children. So it's not, it's not like he totally halted the drone war. He's still doing some bombings. But it is true that there hasn't been anywhere near the volume that we learn about in print outlets. So I don't think, here's my point, I don't think that this graph is, is perfectly accurate because there is a discrepancy between some bombings where civilians died that we know of, and it doesn't look like it's appearing in the chart. Now, I don't know if that's because the bombings were traditional airstrikes and not drone strikes, and this chart is just tracking drone strikes. I'm not 100% sure. So I don't think this chart is exactly accurate. I don't think he halted the drone war, but has he massively cut back compared to Barack Obama and Donald Trump? That, I think, is indisputable. I think he's really reeled it in. Um, again, since they don't have to report it or declare it, um, it's possible he's still doing some of it, but you would hear more about it in print outlets if it was happening all the time, and you just don't. So if I had to venture a guess how much he's cut it, and to be fair, you sort of have to do analyze the same window for both, both Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump. You have to do 
you know, however many days Biden has been in office, and apples to apples comparison will be better, of course. But if I had to venture a guess of how much he's cut back, 60, 70 percent, something like that, the drone war, maybe a little more than that. Uh, so it, it's certainly not as good as what the chart makes it look like. Like, oh, we totally stopped the, the drone war. If he did completely halt the drone war, I'll be singing his praises and I'll be giving him massive credit, just like I did when he pulled out of Afghanistan. He got all the boots on the ground out of Afghanistan. Just like I gave him credit when he signed the executive order to raise the minimum wage for federal contractors and federal employees to $15 an hour. I gave him credit. I'll be fair. So I don't, but I don't think the chart is totally accurate. I don't think he totally halted the drone war. But cutting it back 60 or 70%, look, that's a start. And I think that's roughly what he did, and so he, I think you got to give him credit for that. So I guess we got to wait to get more reporting on this. And um, obviously they need to bring those disclosure rules back so we can – have a better sense of it and not just really take educated guesses at it. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if old Joe did uh, inch in the right direction on this front because he did inch in the right direction on Afghanistan. And he's like, I'm totally getting out. And he even stood up to the media and the military industrial complex in the process of doing that. So in one sense, credit where it's due. You got to keep it real. But in another sense, we do need more uh, information and we do need the disclosure rules back. So, Look, I'll stay on top of this and let you guys know what ends up developing, but for what it's worth, even given all the qualifiers and caveats, it's definitely a step in the right direction. Next. So, um, here's a story that should be a national scandal, but of course it's not because uh, this stuff happens every single day in Washington. This is from Sludge. They say they cover corruption. Healthcare lobbyists fighting against expanded Medicare and lower drug prices have given at least $1.5 million to the DCCC and DSCC this year. So let me explain this. They donated $1.5 million to the campaign arm of the Democrats. Why did they do that? Well, they did that because when you give to the campaign arm as opposed to giving specifically to the campaigns and the individual politicians, uh, you have a higher cap on the amount of money you can give. So I think the limit's like 36500 or something like that. And what you see is uh, all these healthcare lobbyists maxing out and just throwing money at the Democrats. The reason why they're doing that, and again, the total is $1.5 million, is, as described, we want to kill the lower drug prices reform, and we want to stop the expansion of Medicare to include dental, hearing, and vision. Now, in a world that made sense, this would be a giant national scandal. It is just literally direct legalized bribery. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But the media is complicit in this stuff. They think it's just another day in Washington. They think this is just how it works, and so nobody's even talking about it. So listen, when we get, because we're going to get news on Build Back Better, if anything even happens at all with Build Back Better, we will get news that, like, well, they weakened even further various provisions. So... And Bernie is saying, hey, it's a red line. If you don't expand Medicare to include dental, vision, and hearing, you might lose his vote. So if they just keep, if they just keep it, we're only expanding hearing, and if they just keep it, we're only negotiating for like 10 or 50 drug prices to lower the prices, that is literally a direct result of the corruption and the legalized bribery. And I don't know why anybody would be okay with this. You know, this is, 
you wonder why Congress's approval rating is 12%. You wonder why the Democrats are getting obliterated. Now, by the way, that's not to say that the Republicans wouldn't be doing the same shit. The Republicans are against even the, the totally watered-down, shitty reforms that are, like, some drug prices will get lowered and some expansion of Medicaid. They're even against that. So this isn't to give the Republicans a pass. They're even worse. But you wonder why people check out of politics, become apolitical, scoff at the whole system. It's because you're not fooling us. You're not fooling us. Now, maybe people don't know all the details and the specifics, but watch like three secular talk videos and you're like, oh, this is how it works? I got it. So you got it. nothing's going to change unless you change this. And the way to change this is a constitutional amendment to have clean elections, which are publicly financed elections, and stop the big money corrupting of our politics. And if you can't do it through a constitutional amendment, the only other way to do it, because it's interpreted as it's freedom of speech to buy politicians by the Supreme Court. The only other way to do it is to mandate or, or pass a law that says direct democracy at the federal level, where every time we vote for president, we vote on some of the top issues. That's the only way we're going to get positive change. Because if not, we're just going to keep running into walls like this. There's other ways to I mean, I guess you could have a civil rights-style movement specifically on, you know, the issues that are most important to Americans. Literally, lower drug prices is the number one issue for Americans. So if you have some sort of massive million people marching on Washington, demanding it, and not leaving until we get it, it is possible in that scenario to force them to do lower drug prices, even with the corruption, because they fear either for their safety or that they're definitely going to lose their seat or that there's going to be pitchforks coming out. That's possible. But it shouldn't have to take this colossal, you know, movement and mass mobilization to get basic shit like this. And that's why people are fed up. This is the Democratic Party doing this. And again, nobody's going to report on this. By the way, go read the whole article in Sludge. I'll leave the link in the video description box because um, the details are out of this world. They literally name, you know, who the, the executive is giving the money and who this lobbyist is giving the money, and they give the dollar amount per one. And this is the way the sausage is made, man, and it's absolutely grotesque. And this is nowhere near a party of the people. They're literally just betraying their constituents to raise more money for the party and for their next election cycle. And it doesn't matter how fully funded the coffers are and how sharp your message is. If everybody knows you stab them in the back the instant that you have the power and the authority and the ability to legislate. So it's like, it's, it's a fucking cycle from hell. It's an absolute cycle from hell, and that's obvious. Okay, next. Josh Gottheimer is one of the most corrupt corporate Democrats, um, and he did a segment on CNN. He thinks he's some sort of hero. This is insufferable, and he's going to take shots at Bernie Sanders. Sounds job easier. This revives the state and local tax deduction, known as SALT, which would help address his constituents' top complaint, high taxes. I can talk about, hey, I got a salt back. Right, we're gonna, we're gonna make, we're gonna make life more affordable for you. And I go, oh, I like that. Where do you think the Democratic Party is right now? Is it in the right place, as far as you're concerned? I think most people in the Democratic Party are somewhere in the middle, or a little left. Listen, Bernie Sanders lost. Right, and um, that that's not where our party is. Bernie Sanders, a key player as this bill heads to the Senate, doesn't like those tax deductions that are popular here. Back in the car, Gottheimer mentioned Sanders again while talking about the state of the Democratic Party. We're not into socialism. 
right? That's not, that's not, that's not the Democratic Party. Right? We are about pragmatic problem solving and people who can just get things done and work together. Do you feel that you have to say we're not about socialism because you're being painted that way or because you're being pulled that way? No, because that's a reminder that we're not, we're not the party of Bernie Sanders. We're the party of Joe Biden. This guy's an idiot. Bernie Sanders and his philosophy and his policies are the solution. They're not the problem. He is the pragmatic problem solver. You're the corrupt goon of industry and the wealthy. If Josh Gottheimer was right, that they, oh, we made the right move and we got the tax deduction for the rich in the bill, then why is Joe Biden's approval rating 38%? Why does Congress, which is run by Democrats, have a 12% approval rating? Why is that? He said, oh, well, we're not the party of Bernie Sanders. We're the party of Joe Biden. The only reason Joe Biden was picked is because people were scared to death by the media that Joe Biden was the only person who could beat Donald Trump. That's the only reason he was picked. Electability, which is this bullshit meta-concept in conversation that people have. What do I think other people are going to do? What do I think is the same thing? <laughs> Bernie Sanders won on the battlefield of the policy. How do I know that? Look at the original reconciliation bill. Look at how popular it was, every single provision, when it was real, when it was actual universal pre-K, when there was actual child care in there, when there was actual free college in there. What is wrong with you? These people can't acknowledge the most obvious facts of all time. Popular things are popular. Good things are popular. He can't even acknowledge that. He's talking about the salt deduction. That is a tax cut for the wealthy. It allows people in blue states, to deduct whatever their state taxes are from their federal taxes. And that overwhelmingly impacts the wealthy. And by the way, he even lies on that point. Max like, it's not about the wealthy. Bullshit. Bullshit. I cannot stand these guys. He's the problem in the Democratic Party, and he acts like he's the solution. He's also one of the top recipients of industry money, including Big Pharma. It's people like him that kill the idea of lower drug prices, and then they go out there and say, Bernie Sanders is the problem with the party because socialism and boo-boo-zella. <laughs> Shut off with your disingenuous horse shit. That's exactly what it is. Either he's the dumbest guy on the planet, and he's internalized this narrative with zero evidence, or he's just lying. He's lying because he's a corrupt goon of industry. His whole existence is to be a Republican Democrat, is to water down every piece of legislation with every popular idea. He is the problem. There's a reason why. For a decade or more, Bernie Sanders has been the most popular politician in the country. There's a reason why. And that reason is, he stands up there and says stuff like, I think if you work full time, you should be able to survive. And this idiot's like, oh, socialism is bad. Bernie says bad things and believes bad things. I know this isn't his accent, but I can't help but just crack it out for right now. I don't know why. You're the problem, Josh Gottheimer. You're the problem. Look at him. Goofy ass, smiling, going all over the place, acting like he made the bill more popular. He made the bill more palatable. The bill is now despised among the base of the Democratic Party. The bill is making it so that Democrats are down anywhere from 5 to 10 points in the generic ballot and are probably going to get their asses handed them in the midterms. The bill is why Joe Biden's at 38%, because every other day a story came out saying, we're going to strip this popular program and that popular program and that popular program. And all the while, this guy's in the corner like an idiot, clapping like a seal. Oh, I like this. Give me more tax cuts for the rich. Oh. 
So let me get this straight. You vote for Republicans, and what'd you get? The biggest legislative accomplishment of Donald Trump was a colossal tax cut for the wealthy where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%, and that bill incentivized outsourcing, which is something Donald Trump specifically ran against. So you vote for the Republicans, and you get a tax cut for the rich. You vote for the Democrats, and you get a tax cut for the rich. And you get complete neoliberal scam program, like they pretended universal pre-K, and it funds 5 to 10% of the cost of pre-K, and it leaves it up to the states where they can opt out, and a lot of them are going to opt out. We're for pragmatic problem solving. Bernie Sanders is for pragmatic problem solving. Social democracy is the compromise. Social democracy is pragmatism. All the social democratic countries kick our ass on virtually every relevant measure. You have nothing to say about that other than to fear monger about the word socialism and act like Bernie Sanders is the problem when he was the solution all along and you were the problem. All right, final story of the day. Well, uh, if you're into big pharma conspiracies, boy, oh, boy, do I have one for you here, and it's true. So Sharon Lerner of The Intercept says, remember the pill Merck sold to the U.S. government for 40 times what it cost to make? It's way less effective than we thought when we paid $1.2 billion for it, reducing hospitalizations and deaths by 30%, not 50%. So she's talking about molnupiravir. That's the name of the drug. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. Now, the Daily Beast also uh, said, same day, an expert advisory panel for the FDA narrowly voted to endorse the authorization of Merck's COVID-19 oral pill for high-risk adults. Look at, the, look at what it says underneath, though. Quote, the efficacy of this product is not overwhelmingly good, one expert on the advisory panel said. The panel itself is like, this stuff isn't all that good, but we approve it. You approve it. It's not all that good, but you approve it. It, it has a 30% success rate, and you approve it. Why would you approve it? It has a 30% success rate. 30%. Is that even statistically significant? I mean, maybe it is, but if it is, it barely is. 30% success rate, and you, why do you approve it? You wonder why people have an issue with how comfy and cozy Big Pharma is with the government. You wonder why. You want, people look at the way the system works and they go, hmm, that's interesting. Merck and Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline and Johnson & Johnson and all these other pharmaceutical companies, looks like they gave millions and millions of dollars to politicians and their campaigns and the Democratic Party campaign and the Republican Party campaign. And they're spending a lot of money on politics. And, wow, would you look at that? Now the government is making decisions that seem to be very favorable on the side of big pharma. Huh. It's okay. I'm sure, there's nothing to, I'm sure there's no conflict of interest that's leading them to make bad decisions. That's literally exactly what's going on here. Guys, I, okay. We want taxpayers funded through university research. Emory was one of the places, but I think there were others as well. Taxpayers funded the creation of this pill. So you and I paid for it up front for the research and development. Then a pharmaceutical company swoops in, buys up the rights to the pill, jacks it up 40 times what it costs to make, sells it back to the government for that amount of money. It's got 30% efficacy, and they just get it approved, and they're probably going to make a fucking killing on the pill that barely works. What these people need to understand is 
you jackasses undermine faith in the entire system by doing stuff like this. Any reasonable person is going to look at this set of facts and go, whoa, I'm on my own, aren't I? Now I need to, quote, unquote, do my own research. And by the way, that's a terrifying prospect because a lot of people don't know how to do their own research. And they'll end up on some Reddit thread where they finally end up with Alex Jones selling colloidal silver or some bullshit. But you guys are the spark for it. You guys are the reason people ended up going down that pipeline. You have yourself to blame. Look in the mirror. When the government is shown over and over to lie, to be wrong, to take no accountability, no responsibility, and then they don't even own up to it if they're wrong. Remember early on in the pandemic when Fauci was like, you don't have to wear a mask. There's never a reckoning with this shit. Every step of the way, everything they say is supposed to be viewed as gospel. And if you disagree, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. Well, the plain facts on their face show that this is an open conspiracy theory. Big Pharma gives money to the government. Now the government's giving them favorable treatment and approving a pill that's 30% effective. And we paid for the research and development up front, which means on the back end we should be getting it for a discounted price, but we didn't. We got it jacked up 40 times more. And then, by the way, if you go and get the pill, they'll charge you even more when you're there. They have themselves to blame for the total distrust in institutions. It's your own fault. It's your own fault. Every step of the way. They lied us into wars. And now they just do openly corrupt transactions which lead to terrible decisions, and then they bash you over the head and call you a conspiracy theorist when you look at it and start to question stuff. Well, this is why you guys have now made a thriving industry of con men and frauds and charlatans who sell fake answers. But these charlatans come across as more trustworthy than you with your entire bullshit system and the way you've built it. Anybody can see through this shit. Anybody can see through it. And by the way, I'll go a step further. I think this undermines the correct position that the vaccine works. By the way, what happened with, so they said, oh, it's X amount effective, it's, it's pretty effective, the numbers early on were promising, but of course, those studies were funded, at least in part, by the pharmaceutical company itself. Oh, would you look at that? You juiced the numbers because you were the ones who were funding the study. So in other words, you're not doing a real science, you're doing junk science. So that was false. Then when we finally get some independent research, 30% effective. Now, why is, it, is the vaccine still the correct answer and it's legitimate? Well, guys, the, a lot of the studies have not been funded by industry. Some of them were early on. But now we have independent verification, which is why I always bring up that French study of over 20 million people, 20 million, and uh, vaccines reduce severe illness, hospitalization, and death by 90%. So point is, you should be skeptical, but don't let your skepticism become cynicism, and certainly don't let your cynicism become stupidity, okay? But the vaccine is the answer, but because of the bullshit that they do with stuff like this, they are undermining the vaccine as well. Because a lot of people will look at stuff like this and go, well, I guess the fucking vaccine is bullshit too, because they lied to me about this. Why wouldn't they lie to me about that as well? And it's your own goddamn fault. Listen, people have agency. I'm not trying to take it away from them. You are individually responsible for learning about these things and, and uh, evaluating the evidence in an honest way. You are responsible for that. But at the same time, I have no problem at all saying they sparked the entire problem. 
by being so dishonest, so corrupt, so absurd on their face, and being smug about it all the way, wagging their finger at anybody else and calling them conspiracy theorists if, you know, they don't sign on immediately to every single fucking declaration they make, when this is the kind of declaration. We're going to prove this, even though it's 30% effective. What? What? If there wasn't that conflict of interest in that close financial relationship, do you think they would have approved this drug? I think you know the answer to that question. All right, I'm done, guys. I love you, baby. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a good one. Peace. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.